Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guirobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Well, welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today, we're interviewing comic book historian Ken Quattro, who recently published a critically acclaimed and beloved book, Invisible Men, about the trailblazing Black comic artists of the early 20th century. There's been very little historical research into this area of comic history. We'll go more into that later. But Ken sets up a historical atmosphere of what occurred between Reconstruction and World War II, the rise of the KKK, in the midst of the context of the formation of the NAACP, the Harlem Renaissance, the overall everyday life of the Black experience being refused to buy a house because a person's Blackness was discovered, all in the midst of contributing to the comic world. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure being here, guys. So what we're going to do is hopscotch through your life and your research into this book. Jim's going to start on your early years. Go ahead, Jim. You were born in Detroit. 1952. Which means that your first comic book, which was Flash number 121, if I'm correct. Wow, you're good. Yeah, that's right. Was was actually you were you were ten or so. I was I was thinking you were about eight, but you were you were around ten. Well, I, no, if, if it was actually I was eight years old because my birthday's in December. So in early 1961, when it came out, that I was eight years old. Okay, but. Actually, I'd read comics before that. My brother was a big comic book fan, and the only comic books he kept from, he's quite a bit older, and the only comic books he kept were the classic comics. So I grew up on classic comics even before I read any comics of my own. Your older brother, if I'm correct, is the one that took you a few months later where you bought yep. Secret Origins comic. That's right. That, that was the thing that sold me on comic books. I mean, when, when I read all those Origins and that, that was it. I just fell in love with comic books. So tell us the story about what you thought Flash 121 was about when you bought it. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre. The night before, on Sunday night, it was Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. And they had one of those wildlife adventure things Disney used to make. And it was called Flash the Teenage Otter. Well, when I was in the drugstore the next morning with my parents, they were picking up a, a prescription for me. I saw a Flash comic book, and my first reaction was, oh, this is about the teenage otter. Well, <laughs> you know, when I when I, <laughs> I looked at the cover, obviously it wasn't in that, and I took it home, and like I said, I, I was hooked almost immediately with comics. I was going to ask you if you thought Flash and Trickster were chasing the otter or the otter? I don't know. It's, it was bizarre. It was a bizarre entry into comics, but I'll never forget it. I mean, it was it made a huge impact on me. And it was, a, and it's a, the otter. That's compelling stuff. I would say back it, back it, back in those days. Oh, I love the Walt Disney stuff in that. I used to love those. Uh, I think called Wildlife Adventures. They used to make. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, those, good I stuff for those as well. All right, so that got you. That got you interested, and the, and you're. I've heard you talk about the Secret Origins issue. Why that was the 
sort of road to Damascus for you. That was the one that got you really interested. And right. it's because of the history, which was part of you from the very beginning. Right. I've always been in the history and stuff like that. Ironically, I was in the mythology even before I was in the comic books. I started reading really young. I was reading novels when I was four years old. My mom used to uh, tease me about it, how I was always into all these uh, mythological super type characters. And that preceded even comic books. And the comic books, to me, were almost like a modern day version of the uh, mythological gods. So just one just built upon the other. Were you a Ray Harryhausen fan and all that? To a certain extent, you know, to a certain extent, Matt. I loved all the science fiction movies and stuff like that. I mean, I just, I just ate all that stuff up. Yeah, everything like that. Uh, as a as a as a kid in the early '80s, I, I love that Clash of the Titans, and I think I liked yeah. mythology more before comics. Also, that's interesting you say that. Yeah, I, I think it's there's, well, there's obviously a definite connection, you know, between the two. And to me, it just, it was like one build upon the other. And then, you know, the whole historical aspect of it really came uh, into focus for me with Jerry Bales. Yep. Um, going to go next, which is... Oh, go ahead. Early on became aware... And Jim, Jim, before you ask that, can you increase your, vol- your microphone input by like 10%? Okay. I just want to make the audio easier to edit later. That's all. And then I'll splice my little interjection out. How's that? It's better. Thank you. You want more? Maybe 5% more. Okay. How's that? Much better. Thank you so much. Okay. So, Ken, yeah, I wanted to talk about Jerry Bales because you were became aware of of him and, and letter, letters pages and alter ego and, and all of that really early on. What, you're about 12 or so at that point? Yeah, maybe maybe a little younger because he was writing letters to like the Julie Schwartz comics, you know, the well, the Flash and comics like that, Justice League of America. You know, I would see his name and I'd see Detroit, Michigan next to it. Well, that's where I was at or just in the suburbs of Detroit. You know, to me, that was really cool that there was an adult out there that actually liked comic books. And he was talking about these uh, previous versions of the characters that appeared, you know, to me, sometime in the distant past, it was only like 15 years before, but, you know, the 1940s, early 50s seemed like ancient history to me. And then I ran into them eventually at these early conventions, which were, they were held in uh, hotel rooms. I mean, literally, you, you would walk into this small room and just see a bunch of tables with piles and piles of old comic books on it. Nothing was bagged, nothing was boarded, it was just piles of all these old comics. And it was mostly adults who were selling them. It was just, it was kind of neat. And Bales was one of the guys, most of my early comics I bought for him. So had you met him before the 1967 Detroit Con? That was the first one? No, no. It, it was, that that was the first time I'd met him. And like I said, I was such a shy kid, man. I was hardly, you know, I could hardly talk to him. I think the first comic I bought from him was uh, Detective 30. I bought a, a copy from him. Which and this is, cool. and just to clarify with the audience, this is the Detroit Triple Fanfare, and it was 1967 or 68? 68, I believe, was was the first okay. one, because I think they skipped one year. It was the third one. I know that. Yeah, okay. that's it's the third one. Oh, because they skipped a year. That's why it's not. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, because I even get confused on that sometimes. But you were, the first one was in 64. Now, were you aware of it at the time? 
because you were you were no like like I said only through the letters columns and stuff like that I you know when, when he would talk about he set up this uh, organization I think it was American Comic Book Association or something and he mentioned you know giving away the Alley Awards which is named after Alley Oop you know I, I would see references to it and stuff like that well eventually I started after those early conventions I started buying his publications. Bales was the first one really to start indexing in everything, you know, comics. You know, he started detailing what was in each comic book. And a lot of times he would write these little explanations about, you know, who the character was. And sometimes he would write about, you know, the artists and things like that. And that's when it first hit me. There was something more going on. You know, there's somebody actually a physical person creating these comic books and that there was a world behind the comic book. So you were reading what, like panel, panel, what is it, panelologist? Uh, the panel, panelologist. Yeah. She told me, I've ever brought some copies up here and shown you and that, but I got all the issues of it. Oh, I would have loved that. Show it to me at some other time. Yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah. But it's... Uh, hey, that was Alex. I have not seen that. Oh, tell us, tell us about that for a second. Yeah, they were just hand-stapled things that he typed up and, you know, printed off probably on a mimeograph machine. Oh, I have seen that because I like the early fanzine stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, he was the first one really to start detailing this and, and to put comic books really into a historical form. Like, you know, to a lot of people, comics history is just talking about a character. Bales, to me, was the first one to start talking about the people behind the comics and it wasn't just him. Obviously, you had guys like uh, Haynes Ware. There was other guys doing the same work, you know, John Benson, stuff like that. But I became aware of it through Bales. Like I said, I started doing my own research almost immediately. And I was still a kid. I was probably like 18, 19 years old. Oh, that's so cool. it's been about 50 years. It, is it an overstatement to... to say that Jerry Bales is seen as a godfather to early comic book fandom? Is that correct? Well, it, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, like a lot of... If you want to be really technical, you know, there was actually comic book fandom going back to the 40s, probably. Right. And then the you know, science fiction and science fiction fandom back to the 30s, even right or earlier. Right. Right. And there was an EC fandom with guys yes. like John Benston and stuff right. like that, you know, that was pretty active back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. But as, as far as like superhero, superhero and re- it, Bales happened to come along just as the Silver Age was starting. And to me, the Silver Age despite what anybody thinks, started with Marvel, okay? Even though they like to say it's 1956, to me, that was a, a transitionary period, you know, because it wasn't an immediate going from the golden age to the silver age. It, it wasn't like somebody flipped a switch. There was a transitionary period in there where, you know, comic books went through the whole, you know, code thing. And, you know, there's a lot of companies closed down and, you know, people left the business, so a lot of companies were, were going through transition at the time, but it wasn't until like the introduction of Justice League of America in 1960. And then what came right after that in 61 was Fantastic Four. And to yeah. me, that's really when the Silver Age started. Wow. And that's case four. What's that? Showcase four. Not- no, 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 no. I mean, that that's again, that, that's. Uh, retroactive history that, that people are applying there. It's not true. And even Bale said that. And I mean, I, I quoted him. I got a whole long thing I've written called The New Ages. And actually, Jerry helped me write it back in a uh, couple of years before he died, where people like to think that just because, you know, they updated the Flash 
you know, automatically everything changed at that point. It did nothing yeah. really changed. I mean, it all kind of trickled did, in. Right. I mean, DC didn't even start getting the sales figures back until after showcase number eight. Okay. And even then, it, it just sort of indicated to them that there may be a market for superheroes, but it wasn't like everybody started doing superheroes in right. 1956. They didn't. Right. I mean, the best selling comics at that time by far were Dell Comics. It wasn't even close. You know, and it continued that way right up until about 1960. And it wasn't until, you know, Marvel came along in 61. And then, you know, right after Fantastic Four, you had the Hulk and then you had Spider Man. Mm-hmm. And that just set everything off. And that's where you see the real beginnings of the Silver Age happening. You know, and, and Bales had a lot to do with that because he got a lot of people interested in the history of comics, in, in, in tying the old with the new and showing yeah. that there was, you know, a history to it. Within the context of these superhero team books that were just coming out. Right. See, th- there's such a focus on superheroes and fandom. It distorts the reality of what physically happened on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, in any old time fan will tell you that if you talk to Maggie Thompson or uh, any of these old timers and stuff, they'll tell you flat out, you know, Dell comics were by far the biggest selling comics, you know, oh, of yeah. the late fifties. Well, all that like Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse stuff, right? But without a doubt, it, it wasn't, you know, superhero comics. There was only a handful, mm-hmm. you know, being published at the time. And a couple, you know, a lot of companies that tried them, like Archie Comics, you know, they, they tried bringing back, you know, um, what's his name? Okay, um, God, I can't think of his name. Um, got the flag. What's his name? Oh, the shield? Mean- the shield, yeah. They tried bringing back the shield. Yeah, you're talking about like the, what, the Mighty Comics group of like 66, well, 67? Right, but, you know, they proceeded, you know, back in 59, you know, Simon and Kirby you know, brought back the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy, yes. Yeah, Private Strong, right? It's Private Strong, that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, they brought it back for a couple issues. It was basically a flop. You know, there was the Fly and the Jaguar, which are, you know, minor things, but yeah. their biggest selling characters were Archie. Yeah, Jack So Sparling, it wasn't until the... Marvel really came along in 61 that, you know, set everything off. Yeah. True. I mean, that was a movement. And the JLA, obviously, yes. That means right. it's like, the, J- okay. the JLA w- was the one that showed that teams would work and stuff that's like right. that. Yeah, Team And that's, superhero. you know, the apocryphal story. Of, it led to Stan Lee talking to Martin Goodman and all that stuff. Yeah. That's where the, the chasing of the genre started, right? Exactly. Right. You know, in again, you know, comic historians have a, a very myopic view because of superheroes. It's distorted everything. But it's comic books follow trends. Right. You know, they, they don't, you know, they, they're not dedicated to a particular genre. They just go with what sells. Just yeah, like yeah, after World right. War II, when the superheroes started dying out is when all these crime comics came along. Yes. Science fiction and Western. Even, even and the ages of comic books, it's actually very superhero focused. Right. Again, that's, I wrote this thing called the New Ages with Jerry Bales. And, you know, and what we did is we, we broke it down into different, Different ages. I cl- that's why I call it the new ages in a different way of looking at it. So this is where academia and scholarship comes in because right. in in film in film studies and genre, there have been people like Rick Altman that have written about the functions of genre. And so definitions of genre are different depending upon what its function is. And I think that that's the same thing with the notions of these ages which are cycles and and such. They have different functions for different players. So 
I agree with you in the context of how you're using it. But if you're talking about superheroes, well, obviously, the Earth 2 heroes are the beginning of the Silver Age or Earth 1, you know, like, so Earth 1. So the Silver Age Flash has to be Silver Age. So from that point, it would be that beginning or Martian Manhunter or whatever. But that's not what dealers and collectors would use. It would be a different function. The functions are like audience, contract, producers, blueprint, things like that. And, and so if you add that to it, it becomes more nuanced. And we're, we're speaking about it where there's multiple functions for these, these things like ages. Well, see, you're, you're absolutely right there, Jim. And see, a lot of the ages, and this is something like, uh, uh, you guys all know Bob Beerbaum, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, I know what I was saying. But, you know, this is where, you know, him and I totally agree on is that a lot of the, the creation of the supposed ages yeah. was dealer created. Okay. The silver age, the, the definition of golden age and stuff came out like in, in the 60s there. Yes. And silver age was just sort of like a a, a natural follow-up to it. Okay. Yes. But, you know, after that, any other terms that they use, like, you know, copper age or bronze age and yeah. stuff like that, is it's nonsensical. It yeah, makes I no I, sense I, I at think, all. I think sticking to the metals and keep adding right. more, I think that, that gets a little silly. Well, it, it is silly. You know, and to me, it, it, it diminutizes the, the history of comics. See, to me, as, as comic fans and historians, we've hurt our own cause by treating it the way we do by, by being such big fans. There, there's a problem, you know, at the same time, comic history has been written mostly by fans. It also has sort of held it back because we seem to remove comic books from just the, the whole scheme of society by doing that, by, again, by being so myopic about it. Because comic books, to me, have always reacted to outside influences. And to me, that's the way I define the different ages is by the outside influences that created these trends that happened in comics. If, if you go back to like the 1950s is a good example, all the anti-communist comic books, especially right. like, you know, you know, that they had at the time, they were reacting to the, you know, the, the bigger scheme of what was happening throughout the country. It wasn't, you know, a genre created in comic books, you know, anti-communist comic books. Right. They were just reacting to what was happening in the outside world. How do, how do you what, feel about the term atomic age? Well, I hate that. I mean, it, even Bob says that, and he's the one who came up with it. He, he did it almost as, a, uh, as an offhanded kind of thing for Overstreet. He sort of created that term. But atomic age is ridiculous. Why not call it television age? I mean, television had a greater effect upon comics than the uh, atomic bomb. You know, if you think about because they were responding mostly to what was happening on television. Yeah, that's a good point. If, if you look at a lot of comics that created in the 50s, there were so many knockoffs of like I Love Lucy and all these other shows that were yeah. happening at the time. And they were just translating it to comics. Comics right. that's are better, a That's a better way to describe it. You're right. Right. Comic books are, are a responsive medium. They, they rarely led, you know, in trends in society. They usually follow. And the whole superhero thing was basically just an outgrowth of what was happening in the pulps, if you look at it. I mean, they just took basically pulp characters and juiced them up a little bit, and they put them in comics. I mean, right. it's a lot of the same guys creating the same characters. This is cool, yeah. Because, uh, you know, now I think 
from 98 and on, we're kind of stuck in almost like a movie age where it's all chasing movies. And, but that's right. cool that the early fifties chase TV. That's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. But Alex, the movies are chasing com. They're, it's, it's, they're chasing each other. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's, but it's stuck, but it's stuck well, in I, that though. Yeah. Well, I think that movie, I think that movies are using comics. I, I think it's, it's just, a, it's, a, it's people are making comics in hopes to get a movie made out of it. Exactly. Right. See the, the, what's happening in comics now, and this is the thing I had a Scott McLeod was was a, a visiting professor at a university near here about ten years back, and I was invited to come to a little forum that he had. Me and him kind of got into it a little bit, and I tried saying that comic books. What's happening now is what I call boutique comics, in the sense of like they're not looking at a, a large audience; they're looking at a very specific audience. And it's it's no longer become like trying to appeal to a mass audience. They're trying to appeal to a specific audience, and you and to do that, they're very personalized comic books. You know, at least to me, of the ones that I've read, and obviously not all of them are like that, but they have a very specific reason. Where at one time, comic books were again, you know, they're trying to sell millions of copies. Now, what do they sell? Twenty thousand copies, thirty thousand right. copies. In a country of 350 million people, that's literally nothing. Right. It's you almost know. like more like subculture comics now. Right. You know, and, and that's the, the mode we're in right now. But the movie industry, and Jim would know this a lot better than I would, is, you know, they're just utilizing comics as a launching point, you know. Content. That, yeah. Right. You know, as content. But again, they'll probably tire of that at some point. At some point. The, the the genre will wear itself down, just like westerns or anybody else. There'll still there'll always be, I believe, like a superhero type movies, but I can't see it lasting as you know these great blockbusters year in year out. Right. Just because people I change, society changes. I always make the comparison to the western, and right. that it's broken into television. We will hit a saturation with the superheroes. Right. We'll hit a saturation point at some point, but also the evolution of the, the genre and the cycle is such that they are becoming more sophisticated. We will get some interesting right. films before it fades. And, and Exactly. I t- totally agree with you. Well, 100%. I hope, but I think the difference though is that Westerns don't have a correlation with the growth of technology and superhero films do, and technology is constantly growing and that's going to cause it to last longer than the Westerns did. And, uh, and, I, and my, only, my only worry is, like what if that what if that changes that cycle? I mean, I guess time will tell, but I don't know. I respect that, but I disagree completely. And I'll tell you why. Cinemascope, the the widescreen that allowed for for something like Wild Bunch and things, technology was changing in terms of sound, in terms of the this the film aspect and everything. You look at uh, Stagecoach, and then you look at film from the late 1950s and some of Ford's later stuff or Hawk's later stuff, or certainly by the time you get to Peckinpah, technology has changed completely. Right. I mean, the the rate of change, you're right, is important, but we're we're a far more technologically obsessed society than ever. And I think that that might make a psychological difference or impact as far as audience fatigue to what they're and and some sort of desensitization that that we're getting from these movies. I I don't know. I I think it's starting to happen right now, personally, because, you know, they can't keep crap cranking out these films like. Wonder Woman is, to me, the latest example. I just saw, you know, about a week or so ago. And I don't know if you guys saw that new Wonder Woman film, but I was disappointed, okay? 
Right. There's just not much there. You know, if there's a little bit of action, you know, a couple of action scenes are kind of cool, especially at the beginning. But there's not much there to the story. And to me, that's if they make too many films like that, that'll be the death knell to the, uh, you know, to the comic book trend. But because you know, that, that, that old- could be that could be theoretically clumped into movies like Green Lantern and whatever that just more often right. than not, there's a misfire in DC movies. It could well, just be but, clumped into that pattern. Well, it, it could be. But what I'm getting to, uh, Alex, is that I think people eventually just tire of the of the genre of well, of the genre. And, and just, you know, there's so much eye candy that you can provide to hold people's attention. They want a story. I mean, I think I mean, it's because I, I write, you know, I, I to me, a story is very important in anything you write, right. whether it's a comic book. Uh, a novel or a movie or anything to me, the story is important, yes. you know, to hold my attention. There's so many movies made where at the end of the film, I'm going like, really, that's it. You know, it just sort of meanders off into nothing. And I think that's the danger. A lot of times with comic books that there's a lot of flash, but there's not a lot of story behind it. I think, I think the the thing is, and this is unique probably to everything except maybe MGM musicals versus other musicals in the classic era, in that there is a clear division. There's DC and there's Marvel, and Marvel hasn't made that messed up. So none of their films have failed the way that DC films are. I agree with you on that. Whatever. And now that they're making a serious move into television... I'm not sure how long it's going to go, but like Wanda Vision is getting tremendous buzz. Have you guys seen that yet? Have no. You seen no, it's coming out in five days. Yeah, it's oh, out. I thought maybe you saw clips or something of it. I don't know. If well, there, there's definitely commercials, but but yeah, it, the interesting thing I think also I I also read I think it's Kevin Fahey. I think it's all about him. I think it's uh, like I think he may actually start getting involved into some Star Wars content as well, and I think they're all like thinking him and Favreau are the key to the the streaming golden ticket is what, what I'm thinking. But well, we really should talk about Ken's book, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so All right, so Jim, Jim, about uh, <laughs> but Jim, continue. Okay, so I want to get a, a sense, go back in time now. We left you as a, as a kid, basically, in 1968, and you're still reading, and you're reading comics. Do you ever stop going and buying comics on a regular basis? No, from 1967, to give you an idea, 1967, I got my first job, okay? <laughs> Actually, in, April, in May of 1967, the month that Sergeant Pepper came out, just to give you an idea. How old <laughs> That's <I> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyways, I got my first job. And from that point until 1975, when I uh, first got married, I literally bought every comic book that was on the stand. Oh, cool. Okay. I would go into a, a local bookstore. And they had a comic rack. And I would take one of every single comic book that came out and, and two copies of every number one issue that came out. And like I said, that's all I ever wanted to do was draw comics and everything. Every, but, every Monday, I would have my dad drive me to 7-Eleven and there would be the wired package of comic yep. newspaper over them. And I would wait until the, yep. comic, uh, yep. the 7-Eleven guy cut it and he would let me get go through it and get them before they even went on the rack. Oh yeah, it was it was key to get the ones that were a couple issues down though because the ones on top always have the wire uh, cuts but, in them and stuff. Yeah, and 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 so 
I don't think from 67 to now, there's, I don't have in, in the next room a, a comic with a month and a year. I mean, I never stopped. Right. Did you ever hit a point where you said, okay, I just can't go? Because a lot of people do. They have that, you know, that Barry Pearl notion of, okay, I quit this month and I've never read a comic. Yeah. He stopped in like 79 or something like that. Yeah. Well, no, what, what, what I did was, is briefly when I first got married and that I stopped reading for a, a very short period of time. I mean, like a month or two, maybe, but from there, right up through the nineties, I was probably bought comic books every single month. I mean, I had a complete collection of Marvel comics from fantastic four, number one on right through the seventies up to the, through the eighties until, you know, probably about 10 years ago when I started selling some of it off, but I I've had so a you, lot of you were, you, your love back then, you were more of a Marvel guy? No, I just love comic books. I mean, Marvel was the one that really hooked me. I'm going to say go. that in the beginning. To me, like, uh, matter of fact, I was, I was on a podcast yesterday, and the guy said, if you were stuck on a desert island, what comic or series would you uh, like to you know, have just for the rest of your life? And I said, uh, Spider-Man 1 through 38. Yeah. I mean, to me, yeah. that was the perfect comic book. And especially when you get down to the, that famous sequence, you know, in uh, Spider-Man number uh, 33, you know, where he's yeah. lifting the heavy machinery the off machine. and stuff like that. Yeah. To me, that the five-page sequence, you know, in that right there was all you need to know about comic books right there. Why, why I love comic books and it tells everything you need to know about how to build a, a story and everything in a comic. It was amazing. And what was so great about it to me was the hero of that story wasn't Spider-Man. It was Peter Parker. Yeah. Because Peter Parker was, that's what made him lift that. It, it wasn't this uh, idea of being a, a superhero. It was the idea he was saving his aunt May by, because he had to get this serum to her to save her life. And that's what gave him the strength to lift this thing off of him. And that's what made him heroic. And it wasn't this, godlike superiority that superman has and stuff like that we saved in the entire world it was just that one single person you know trying to save somebody in his family i just think that's an amazing sequence i it is now that that and, 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 and the number of boxes i mean they would decrease with each page until there's a big right like i said it's a five-page sequence i think you know leading up there from getting yeah. from the splash panel to where he lifts that one yeah there's a cool usage of the panels and the countdown, and then this brilliant. Explosive. It was just so it was. brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That one in da and Namor dragging Daredevil and right. uh, on the on the ground is, and he's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a lot of great scenes. I mean, yeah, no, but I mean, for me, that may be why I became a lawyer. Is Daredevil. <laughs> Matt Murdock, man, you heard it right here, folks. The origin of Matt Murdock. So. <laughs> in those trunks in the courtroom and not because I wanted to see that necessarily, but it was, that's what got me. That's why I, because of Namer himself, not Daredevil, but yeah. But is it that, but that's funny, but yeah, there's a, there's a Kirby, a wood and a Ditko for me that all swim around there and formed my basic moral system. Right. And, yeah. That's like, that's yeah. like 1965, uh, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, but see, I started in, I, I, it would be about like 67, 68, but everything was, was being reprinted in, mm -hmm. in the reprint books yeah. at the same time. So while I might not have gotten it in the same version as, as, as Ken did, 
I I was reading those books at the same time because they were coming out in Marvel Greatest Comics or Fantastic. Right. right. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's let's get you to college. It's time for you to go to college. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Did you decide you wanted to be a journalist? Because I know you were a journalism major. And tell me where you went to school. Okay. It, it's kind of complicated for me. Early on, I knew I wanted to draw comic books. And again, it was probably Steve Dicko who made me want to do that. I don't know if you guys saw yesterday, I posted, a, I drew a, a copy of Spider-Man number 38. I copied yeah. it back when I was 13 years old. I put yeah. it up on my uh, Facebook page yesterday. I just happened to find it. But anyways, uh, I always wanted to be a, a, a comic book artist. Well, my mom really encouraged me at all that stuff like that, you know, to be an artist and everything. Well, she died of lung cancer when I was in 10th grade. And uh, that kind of just changed everything for me at the time. And my family ran, ran restaurants. My father was one of the founders of Little Caesars. I don't know if you guys, you know the pizza place, right? Yeah. Okay. So we have a bunch of restaurants. And I was working in our restaurant and stuff like that. And it was just assumed that I was going to be an heir to working in these restaurants for the rest of my life. So I, so I kind of had to swim against the, the stream there to, to go to college and study artwork and stuff. And even though I wanted to study artwork, I was discouraged by uh, my counselors in school of taking up arts. Don't ask me why, but they said it's, there was no real uh, career in it or anything, even though, you know, that's all I ever wanted to do. So I went to my second level, which was writing. And I majored in things like I majored in journalism. I went to Eastern Michigan University and I also went to University of Michigan. I bounced back and forth uh, between the two. And I took these journalism classes with all these uh, professors who were amazing amazing writers, guys who'd been the war correspondents in World War II and everything, and had these fantastic stories and everything. And they kind of ingrained in me this objective perspective of, of viewing a story. And I talked a little bit out about this off the air with Alex. And that's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's become part of my personality to try to be as objective as I can to when I look at anything. You know, even though I even though I may have my own personal biases, I try not to let that come through in the things that I write about. And that's where I became, you know, uh, even though I studied journalism, again, I never made a career of it in that because it didn't really pay that much. I had, you know, like I said, I got divorced early when I was only 24. We had a son and I ended up raising him by myself for 12 years. So what I did for 12 years is, well, more than 12 years, is I worked for FedEx. And I was a delivery guy for FedEx for 27 years. Hmm. I did all this other stuff on the side. I went back to college. I got a degree in computer programming. I became a fine arts major after that. I studied fine art at Eastern Michigan. This is, this is fascinating to me because we, well, let me just say I was a journalism major too. And I was, I wanted to be an artist and all, all the same things up until right. I didn't get married. I went to law school and that's, that's right. But apart from that, it's almost the exact same, but this is why you and I actually get along. <laughs> even though we might otherwise not based upon other things. Oh, I'm an easygoing guy, Jim, believe me. Me too. As, as Alex will say, but, but, but you know what I mean? When you and I talk, we never have issues when we're no. back and forth. Even no. We may have different ideologies in a lot of ways or different thoughts about things. Um, listening to you and Alex talking earlier, <laughs> hear me go, no, 
but I was doing it in terms of content. But we know never- that's what happens when you don't click join audio on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach you. So I just want to say this makes sense to me because it's that journalistic sensibility of dealing with the facts and getting it right the details out there rather than trying to turn it into a point of view is is a thing that I, I think we respect each other for. Right. Like I said, and that, that that was really important to me in writing this book, because one, not only was I was I referencing mostly news articles, you know, I didn't want to make the, the book a, a diatribe or a, a narrative that I was trying to sell to anybody. I just wanted to report the facts about these men in you know, the, the world surrounding them, you know, what they had to deal with. I mean, these are actual facts. This is not, a, you know, me mythologizing anything. And it wasn't me working from apocryphal stories like a lot of comic book stories are. That drives me crazy. That, that's one of the things that drives me crazy most about, you know, a lot of comics history is it's based upon just stories people pass down. And you got to be careful of that. It's always nice to have you know, accounts from people who were, you know, during that time period, but everybody has their own perspective, you know, in involving like Matt Baker is a perfect example. You know, there's, there's always been this rumor that Matt Baker was gay. For instance, you get some people who said that he was gay yet other people, including his family swear that he wasn't. Okay. So I was presented with two sets of facts there, you know, two opposing ideas. So what I did in the book is present both of them. And I just leave it to the reader saying, I ended with just, you know, he never came out, you know, one way or another. So I can't sit there and make a a statement about what he was or wasn't. And it's not fair of me. I didn't think as, as a, a historian or a journalist, to make that determination. I'd much prefer that you just present the facts to people and let them determine for themselves. Yeah, I've read pretty much every book on Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and the creation of things. And every single person is even the best of the books. They always make a decision about some of the things that have different stories and mythologies about them. And they present it as fact. And it's not there, uh, there are several where it's like, well, that's either true or it's not true, but nobody knows for sure. And they always say, this is what happened. And it drives me crazy. And not a single one is, has not done what you did, which is to say, some say this, some say that. Right. And, and like I say, you know, it's, I, I, I just try to be fair with, with everybody, you know, and I just want to be honest. It's, to me, that's the way history has to be presented or should be presented. And like, like I say, I, I'm privy to a lot of information that I never share with people. And, and that's that's because people trust me when, when they tell me certain things. <laughs> Hi there. You know, I've seen documentation. I've seen contracts sometimes that would stun people if, if they knew they existed. But I've been, asked, I've been sworn to secrecy not to, you know, discuss those sort of things. But that, that's just part of the thing like about being a journalist. You know, you're, you're presented with facts and sometimes you have to uh, winnow out what you can report and what you can't report. And I always try to, to fall on the side of if it's going to hurt somebody, I'm not going to do it. And especially like with Baker's family, 
his half brother's still alive and stuff like that. It wouldn't be fair to me to make a judgment. Right. You know, one and the, way and or the two competing narratives about that are from his half brother that's saying he right. wasn't, and then from Baker's best friend Frank Juicy, who is right. a comic artist, also who's saying he was. Right. Those are the two competing narratives. Um, I believe so. And there was who else was it was uh, Osman. He said he was not, and he was his anchor. Yeah, he was you know, his anchor yeah. for years. So right. again, you know, you have these competing perspectives. And, you know, it's only fair to present both sides. That's what right. you have to do. At least I think, you know, that should be a journalist's job. Mm-hmm. So this is a great segue point to to get to actually talking about your book. And, okay. And specifically, Alex is going to ask you about the, the spark that started this. Yeah. So, you know, first uh, I want to compliment you on it because I read it. I loved it. I noticed that you put warts and all. On, on every aspect of it. You, you write both about even the pros and cons of some things like Woodrow Wilson's involvement with the um, KKK and, right. and that he was a Democrat with the Southern Democrat Jim Crow laws, but also then with the Harlem Renaissance, how there's also a good side to the Democrat involvement when a lot when some of these black artists were part of liberal movements to improve their rights in the world. So it's interesting. You have both you really address it from a lot of angles and, and I want to compliment you, but tell us first, how did the book start? Tell us about the initial spark. What, what started all this? Well, again, it goes back to Matt Baker years ago, about 20 years ago. Like I told you before, he was always one of my favorite artists. I just really you know liked him. And I was actually at the time I was doing research for a long article on uh, St. John comics. And he was their main artist for the romance line. Right. Archer and I wanted John. To get, right. You know, I wanted to do some uh, background information on him. Well, at the time, you know, 20 years ago, there was almost nothing known about him. There was, there was two facts that everybody knew, that he died young and that he was black. Well, I kept asking around everybody I would uh, come across, what do you know about Matt Baker? Do you know anybody who knew Matt Baker? And nobody did, at least not a, that I'd come across, until finally somebody said to me, and I can't remember who it was, have you ever talked to Samuel Joyner, who was a retired black cartoonist in Philadelphia? They said he's uh, he'd been around for a long time, and he knew a lot of other black artists. So I got his address, and I wrote to him. Mr. Joyner wrote me back a letter, a four-page letter, and a whole packet of clippings and uh, photocopies of not only stuff about Matt Baker, but Jay Jackson and Elmer Stoner, who I knew and stuff like that, but several other artists, Ted Shearer. And he just said, you know, different cartoonists that he knew, not just comic book artists, but different artists. And he also mentioned that he was friends with Cal Massey. Him and Cal Massey had gone to New York. They were from Philadelphia and they'd gone to New York together in 1950 to visit all these black artists. And they met E. Sims Campbell and they met, you know, Matt Baker, and Elmer Stoner and Ted Shearer. And they went around to all their studios and got tips from all these guys. Well, after I got this letter, I wrote to Mr. Stoner again, and he wrote me back more about his personal background. Oh, yeah. That's uh, cool. As a cartoonist. Matter of fact, I just put something about that on my blog about a week or so ago, a couple of weeks ago about him. Fascinating. Wonderful man. Wonderful, wonderful man. And he's really the one who. Uh, deserves all the credit for this book existing because he's the one who gave me the spark, the idea for it. So I started looking into some of, not a Matt Baker, but other 
artist that he mentioned, and I, I did what I normally do, which is start looking in newspaper archives and stuff like that to see if I could find any information. And there was nothing in the regular newspaper archives about these guys. And I go like, that's so weird. And it dawned on me to try to find a black newspaper archive, which at the time was very hard because unfortunately, most libraries never kept copies of black newspapers. They just never did, you know, but. And that, yes. and that's kind of weird. I think it, it's, it's very weird. I mean, there's very, very few archival sources for black newspapers in this country. There's more now than there was when I started this, you know, it was 20 years ago. At that time, there was hardly anything. But finally, over time, I would find, you know, one here or I'd find a partial one in another place. And then I would start finding articles about these guys. And many of these guys were well-respected fine artists and, or they were cartoonists in the black media. I mean, you know, the newspapers of the uh, black newspapers of the 40s are full of stuff by Robert Pius, Elton Fax, you know, all these guys, E. Harper Johnson, you know, J.J. It's all these guys were regular artists, well-known artists in the black media, but totally unknown Yeah, in the white media. And that's, I speak about dual consciousness. There was a, a book written by W.E.B. Du Bois back in 1903, I think it was called The Soul of Black Folks, okay? And he speaks about dual consciousness, where basically it's where Black people learn to lead two different lives. The lives they lead at home and in Black society, you know, with, with the other Black people, and the lives they lead in white society. And it's two, literally two different worlds. And as a white person, even though I may have had some inkling of that, I never realized it until I started reading all this black media. Right. And it's, you talk about an eye-opening experience. I wish, you know, they had classes in schools where all you did was just read black media from like the, say like the 19, mid 1950s going back. You would get such a different perspective of the world, huh. of America. That's cool. Than, than what you see in white media. It's it's amazing. The same stories would be covered, but in totally different perspective. Or you would see um, in white media where something was not covered at all, like, say, a, a lynching. You know, there was some 1,500 lynchings prior to 1950 in America, from like 1910 to 1950 or something like that. 1,500. Wow. But rarely were they covered in the white media. Or if they were, many times they're on the back pages. In black media, it'd be front page news and headlines and pictures and stuff. And like I said, you know, it, it's like all of a sudden stepping into a, a, a different world, you know, just. And that's what I, again, with this book, I tried to do is I try to share that experience with people. With, you know, white and black people, because even a lot of younger black people, I, I don't think are aware of everything that their forefathers went through. I mean, it was unbelievable, the, the discrimination, the Jim Crow laws and stuff that they went through on a daily basis that we can't even comprehend. Right. You know, and, and that's what I just try to, again, I just try to show that to people and say, like, these guys didn't just draw comic books. Comic books were the entry point into their lives for me. But there's so much more going on. And that's, again, yeah. you know, that's and, and you do that really well because you bring you, you create an atmosphere of the Har Harlem Renaissance 
and the involvement of that. And then also even other things that other people wouldn't really think about or talk about, like the difference between the African-American experience in comparison to the African-Caribbean experience in America. Right. And it's like two totally different experiences, two totally different sets of even self-esteem back then and outcomes. It's really interesting. Right. Um, all so, right. So, Jim, yeah, go ahead yeah. into his research aspect of it. You're talking about it. I mean, you've explained it pretty much that you're you're a primary source researcher. Right. And in fact, you've called yourself more of a detective than a historian. Exactly. Um, why do you not call yourself a a a research journalist instead of detective? Is it just because? Well, okay. If, partially, it's tongue tongue in cheek because I don't know if you realize that comics detective flip it around as detective comics. Okay. Okay, saying. that that's part of the reason. But we won't tell the DC lawyers that. Right, right. <laughs> like one time, I made a logo up where I just flipped the logo around. You know. Detective Comics and put comics, but I said that's that's a little much, but that's part of the reason. But also, I is as far as like the historian part of it. I don't think I really have the bona fides to call myself that. You know, I, I I didn't go to college for it. You know, I don't have a degree in it. And I think that a lot of times a historian is basically a person who interprets history, and that's not something I really try to do. I just try to report history, and that's the way I look at it. I mean, it's. You know, and as far as like being a detective, that's basically what I do is I just try to find information and try to find connecting threads. I'm really good at, at finding connective threads between stories and people and stuff like that. I've, I've gone down rabbit holes you wouldn't believe sometimes, you know, to find something. Well, I I was listening to you a lecture that you gave and you were talking about going into the FBI files, for for example, and which... Wait, for who? Did you say it again, Jim? Oh, for Lev Gleason. The, yeah. the only one, because the guy that wrote the book currently, his uh, great aunt, great nephew, did this Brett. thing. Brett Dakin. But yes. that family, and I think that's a wonderful book, too. I, I really enjoyed yeah. it. That's, that's the kind of researcher that I want. I mean, because that's fascinating to me. And it seems like, you know, that's that's your approach to all of that. I well, the question I would have is when this started, when this started, some of these people were alive. Did you go and talk to family members? Did you try to talk to the artist? Because no, what the, the only artist who was who were still alive at that time that I knew was uh, Cal Massey, really. And I really didn't know how to get a hold of him or anything else. And Matt Baker's family. You know, he had already he had already done a long interview with uh, All Our Eagle magazine and uh, Jim Amish, who's a friend of mine and stuff like that. And just is that how his last name is? Is that how Amish. his last name is? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I thought it was Amash yeah. for some reason. Okay. Well, that's because you're thinking about the guy from Michigan who was in uh, Congress. Oh, okay. That's probably Jeez. right. Yeah. But okay. he's actually a relative of his, I believe. Yeah. But that's a cousin, I think. But that's mm-hmm. that's another story. Anyways. But he was a friend of mine and that, not a respect for him and that. I didn't want to retrod the same uh, path that he had, you know, interviewing something right after he interviewed somebody. And a lot of times, too, to be honest, I try to keep an arm's length away from uh, family members a lot of times because they, you never know how they're going to react. Even though I've interviewed a lot of family members, I've had 
totally different results. Some people, like Bernard Bailey's family, couldn't have been nicer. And I have a huge amount of personal information that they shared with me about Bernard Bailey. But I've had other families who have been, well, they're, they're very sensitive about being contacted because a lot of times they're ashamed that they've worked in comic books, which I know is hard to believe, but even uh, Bailey's family, his wife and stuff, while she was alive, they were ashamed that he worked in comic books and they never wanted to talk about it. And the only reason why his kids talked to me is because their parents had already passed on. But so it, it's kind of a, a, a double-edged sword when you're talking to family members. Right. And I heard, I heard so, that the Mac Raboy's family had similar weird concerns about talking about him that much. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of, like I say, it's, it's a double-edged thing. So you never know what you're going to get yourself into when you contact somebody. And I didn't want somebody to short circuit what I started on and to tell an objective story, you know, equally throughout each one of these guys, I thought it was only fair to do it the same throughout all. I didn't want to give more, more credence to one story than I would to somebody, somebody else, you know, just because I've had more access maybe. Yeah. Like I say, I'd, I'd be interested to talk to some of these family members, but again, I've kind of leave that up to them. I, I've also read where you you've talked about the the nature of comic book history and historians, where it's it's largely fan based mm-hmm. rather than from from independent academic scholarship right. and scholarship, and that that makes a difference because there's a a biased love for it. And once you start, you know, if you're doing a Kirby biography and you used to spend your your child your your teen years at Kirby's house. You're going to have a certain perspective, exactly. and you escape that trap that a lot of similar historians who have a, a large fan background in it don't escape that. And so I think you were very smart to do that, and that's that's why I asked you that question. Well, again, Jim, you know that goes back to the whole journalistic thing, though. You know, I, I learned that early on to to, to try to you know, create that distance between me and the story. You know, no matter how I feel about it, you know, it's. Yeah, I am a comic fan, obviously, you know, a huge comic fan. But to me, that's that's just the starting point of, of what interests me. But if you get somebody uh, writing about these, what I've always thought was interesting, if you get somebody who's writing from like an academic point of view, like say Jill Lepore did with The, the Secret History of Wonder Woman, yeah. okay, you get a totally different view. She wasn't a comic fan coming in, you know, to write this thing of Wonder Woman. And that's why... There's there's such a, a difference of opinion of that book. I mean, some people love that book and some people hate that book. But it's because she came in as a person who has no personal attachment to comic books. And I, I think that kind of skews, in a way, the story, you know, because she has that academic distance there. You see what I'm saying? I mean... I think I'm lucky in, in the sense of that I do have the fondness for comics and I do understand what comic fans in, like about these artists and stuff like that. Like, say, Matt Baker. I mean, I could write a book on Matt Baker and the things I love about his artwork, no problem. You know, but that wasn't what I was trying to portray. But at the same time, that was the entry point into his life for me was comic books. Non-comic fan scholars who come in and want to do it because it's the hot topic make more errors in their oh it drives me crazy it drives me crazy 
as sometimes. And yeah. have lay people will, civilians will come up to me and say, did you read the Laporte book? Isn't it great? You must love it. And say, well, it's hard to get past all of right. the stuff that's just tragically wrong about it. Right. But she did some really good work in it, too. You see, and that's, you know, maybe that's I'm a little biased because she also consulted me and I'm quoted in the book. <laughs> but but, you know, she did some really good work. And I think she was, you know, she's a good writer as far as like that's concerned. But like you say, there's there's mistakes in it. And that's what the problem I have with anything I read about comics history. Once I start reading it, even you guys seen me do this on your own on your own site there where somebody will say something. And it's, it's like something explodes in my head, like, oh, my God, don't say that. Or, you know, you're so wrong. Right. You know, you. you oh, I remember so. some of the explosions. Yes. Oh, yeah. As I said, you know, I, I got to watch that. You know, it's I'm Italian. It's, it's part of my personality. I can't help it. But <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> so, you know, it, go ahead. So I think that's that's the sources. And so that's how you approach this book. But how did the book get made? And Alex is going to take us through that. Okay. So, yeah. So when once you started getting this idea, collecting research, at what point were you like, okay, this would be a good history book or a good history, comic history text? And then how did you approach different publishers? How did you approach them? No, it's okay. I've been posting articles online and writing articles for over 20 years, okay, going back to the mid-90s. And I've been fortunate most of the time I've been approached by people who want right. to publish my stuff. Yes. And especially like Alder Eagle, Roy Thomas has done it you know, several times, and he has a bunch of other articles of mine that are still sitting there. And one of the other guys who's done it was Craig Yo. Mm-hmm. You know, and Craig's a great guy. And everything. Yeah, I, I, I love Craig. He's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I've done things for Craig in the past and stuff like that. Well, a few years back, probably about four or five years ago, he said, do you want to do a book? Because usually people approach me for an article that I've already done. And they say, hey, can we publish that? And then I'll do a few tweaks and they'll publish it. He's the first one to say, like, do you want to do a book? And see, part of the problem with the kind of stuff that I do is that I'm told all the time it's not commercial. Because... It's it's not about superheroes. You know, I'm not writing about, you know, the you know the Flash or the changes in Wonder Woman's costume or something like that. You know, it's I'm I'm writing about this historical type stuff that's pretty obscure a lot of times. And he was the first one I had, you know, the foresight, I guess, to say, "Do you want to do a book?" And I said, "Well, there's a lot of books I want to do." He said, "Well, what's you know what what's one?" And the first one was Bernard Bailey. He agreed to that. I wrote an entire Bernard Bailey book along with images and everything. And I gave it to him. I spent a year on it. And after I finished it, he goes, well, he says, I don't know how commercial this will be. So he said, is there another one you want to do? And even though I'd spent a year on this book, I said like, well, I've always wanted to do a book. And I explained to him about the black artists. I've done some articles like about Stoner that all our ego had published. But I said, I'd like to do an entire book. I said, because there's a story here that's never been told. It's it's a part of comics history that, that we have a blind spot about. And I'd like to point that out. And he gave me free reign. He said, go for it. And I spent um, well over a year on it. And then through rewrites and stuff like that, probably two years writing it. And it's been finished for almost two years. And, you know, over the past two years, you know, we, we, I gave him a lot of images and, you know, he acquired some and stuff like that. And it was just a process. 
I think they did a great uh, job with the design, him and his wife, Plezio. And I think they deserve all the credit in the world for that, you know, because it, it, the visuals mean a lot in this book, I think. I think it, it gives a lot to just the story, you know, mm-hmm. of these. Yeah, movies. for sure. And they're very effective because you have samples of photos, newspaper clippings, right. and actual comic book pages, which which are all... Are they the comic book pages are, but are the newspaper clippings? Is that public domain? How does that work? Some of that stuff is just because of age and stuff. Some of these publications are totally out of business, right? I mean, you know, that's one of the things, too. You know, there's also you fall into a gray area of fair use and stuff like that. And most publications will let you use like a standing image and stuff like that without too much. Only one we really had a deal with really was a Sojourner True Story from Wonder Woman Comics. We had to go to Warner Brothers there. And fortunately, I know a corporate lawyer at Warner Brothers. And he smoothed the way for us. And uh, Oh, that's good. Yeah. And that's how we, we were able to use that, you know, which yeah. was, was, was a big thing. I yeah, wish you could have awesome. used the yeah. that, that, that Because yeah. it can be problematic. I mean, you got to be careful. Oh, yeah. And like I say, you know, that, that was part of the, the whole thing of putting the book together. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there's a lot of uh, moving parts. <laughs> yeah. Because there are some history books that don't have any pictures because of that reason, right? Right, and, uh, right. But the nice thing is a lot of these artists at the time, they're working in companies that are defunct and no longer there. And you can actually use a lot of that stuff. So it's right. quite a visual treat. And it's really nice for the audience to be able to read that and compare and contrast to different artists and their work. But also you make a point of certain aspects, which we're going to get into as we talk about each of us has picked one uh, person right. from your book to discuss. But there are some interesting concepts like how in World War II, a lot of the white men went off to fight the war. And so there's a vacuum and you have the Rosie the Riveter type of presence in comics with white women in comics. But then you also have black men in comics that fill the void. Um, that's one aspect. But then to the shops that there were comic shops like the Iger shop and and the Bernard Bailey studio and these different shops that would basically just take whatever work from whoever and sell it to publishers. And so then that created a a way for black men to enter the industry. So first let's, uh, before we go to the different characters, when you started seeing these patterns, you know, was that fairly soon into the research or was that years of research until you started realizing? That, that was that? actually years into the research. It's funny you mention that because it's hard to tell from just one or two guys exactly what was going on until I started reading some of their stories. And, you know, fortunately, some of these guys gave interviews about their work in comics. And it was interesting how they, they, they each made a reference how they uh, themselves were didn't like or were afraid to deal with the white editors personally. So they worked through these, either they call them agents or what it was, was, it was comic shops. It was guys like Jerry Iger and Harry Chesler and Jack Binder and guys like that, who they would work through, who would get the jobs. And in turn, they would be, they would get their assignments from the comic shop and do it remotely in their own studios. Almost every one of these guys, uh, Stoner had his own studio, which, you know, there's photographs of it, I think, in the book there even, mm-hmm. in Greenwich Village. You know, Hollingsworth talked about dropping off stories. You know, he, he would get an assignment, and he'd go drop it off, and then he'd go home, you know, and stuff like that. He was just a kid. But each one of these guys, they would work remotely, so they didn't even have to deal with the white editors. It was very interesting how it happened. 
Yeah, there's almost like a little bit of a bypass to get right. The it was stuff a buffer. In. It was it was a buffer bet- a between buffer. the white yeah. editors now because they never knew what sort of reception they would get if they'd walk in there. Right. Samuel the Joyner they didn't care. One. They just wanted to fill material, sell material. They didn't really right. care where it came right. from. Right. 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 And then the editors are like, okay, cool. Well, this looks good. We'll print it. I mean, it's the perfect. Right. You know, because because um, comic books they have time were just concerned about content. That's all yeah. they cared about. Yeah. That's they didn't care where it came from. Right. Just help me fill the sixty four pages. Also, another thing is how, let's say, if maybe the comic page of a particular artist may not look that great, their other art that they did, whether it's illustration or being sculptors or working at the Mint or these other things that they did that were non-comics were actually far better quality. So a lot of them were basically just trying to make some money through comics. And so you can't really judge the artist purely from the comic pages. Also, that's another concept um, I learned from you there. So, so let's talk about the different, um, a few people, you know, we've each picked one. The one that I really wanted to talk about was Adolphe Barreau, originally named Adolphus Barreau Grippon. Tell us a little bit about your awareness of him and his involvement in the early comics, and and let's talk a little bit about him. Okay, well, well, Barreau was an interesting person. He was one of the people I had on a list of may have been black or may have been partially black, because that was one thing I did is early on is I started creating a list of people who may have been black. And I, you know, I kept talking to different people and accessing, you know, different forums and stuff like that. And he was one of the people who was on it. So I was never really sure. But a few years ago, Craig, you know, my publisher, he said he'd heard that bro was black. And he said, you know, will you follow up on that? And I said, okay. So I started putting more research into it. And sure enough, through genealogical research, he was black. I mean, he was yeah. definitely black. This is and cool. Happened, you and Craig, it's almost like a Perry White, Clark Kent thing going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we worked really good together. I mean, it was good. So I followed up on it, and he was definitely black. And what happened is he was raised by an aunt, basically. And they moved from South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, to New York City. And when they did that, they changed their last name, and they changed their identity. Because they had such light skin, they started uh, passing as white. Mm-hmm. And he basically made up an entire mythology about his past. He would refer to his mother coming from uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. And, right. You know, it, it was just very bizarre how he just created an entire new identity. But that new identity allowed him access to things he never would have had if people had known he was black. Like I yeah. said, he, you know, he went to Yale. He never would have got into Yale if they'd known he was black. Uh-huh. I looked into it, the qualifications to get into Yale at that time. And though they didn't expressly say, if you're black, you couldn't get in, they highly discouraged any black students going to Yale at that time. Mm. So he, he knew if they'd known he was black, he wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened. And yeah. he ended up working entirely in white media. He never worked in black media. He was only one of these artists I found like that. who never worked in the black media at all. And he totally created this different persona. Yeah. To the point that even later in life, and even though I didn't publish these letters, he was writing letters to his hometown paper in, in Charleston, South Carolina, talking about his friend Strom Thurmond and his friend Mendel Rivers, who are segregationists. He belonged to the Sons of the Confederacy organization and stuff like that. Very bizarre, you know, from you know our perspective to see it. Yeah. But there's almost like a self-hating aspect to that. 
Well, again, you know, I, I don't want to get into a person's mind. You know, I don't know exactly. But it was very strange how he he almost went to the extreme. I mean, his son worked for Richard Nixon. OK, he, he's if you look his son, that you can look his son up right now. And he still was a prominent member of the Republican Party. OK, they all record themselves as being white. OK, mm-hmm. there, there's no reference at all to being uh, partially black or anything. And so that's always been a sensitive subject. So by my publishing this, I don't know if I'm going to get threatened or something now or whatever, but it's, it, again, you know, he was a, a unique guy, but it, it was what he must have determined he had to do to succeed because right. he never would have succeeded as well as he did. Mm-hmm. Right. He also went to DeWitt Clinton High School. Is that right? In yeah. the 1910s. And that's where, what, Bob Kane and Eisner went? Yeah, Eisner went there. Actually, Stan Lee went there. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting, but that almost like 20 years before them, right? Right. right. He's much older than them. Yeah. He's actually much older, but that's, that's fascinating, right? How much of like early comics is coming from this high school? Um, Well, all all those New York high schools are, it's ridiculous. If you, if you look at the, you know, the, the classes that they have there, you know, the the different students, like the school of music and uh, art and, uh, industrial uh, art school and all that. Yeah. And it even, and that's cool that you actually uh, talked about the formation of the school of industrial arts and, and what right. was going on around that. What in like the, the later thirties. Right. Uh, but, but what's cool because Neil Adams went there like in the fifties or something. So yeah. And um, his, in, in Hollingsworth ended up teaching there. Yeah. See, so it's just really interesting, the the high schools and these kind of like training schools of, of New York and then comics. Yeah. And that's cool that you you go into that in your book because you don't really see the origins of those schools in other books, actually. So yeah. just another cool thing, another cool treat from your book. So then now more about Barreau. Uh, a lot of people, I don't know if the fans know, but just to kind of throw it out there that he was actually working in the pulps with Harry Donenfeld. I like how you described them, a printer with mob connections who would acquire publishers that defaulted on printing expenses. Right. Uh, and that's actually like a cool, that sentence, again, I just, there, there's many reasons why I like, I, I love the way you phrase a lot of the things you did, but that sentence really summed summed him up, his early involvement in comics, because uh, there's a whole question of acquiring DC Comics that way. Then, but let's talk a little bit more about Barreau is he, he actually did, he worked, did some comics, Sally the Sleuth for Donenfeld's Spicy Detective Stories Pulp Magazine, but then also ha- was in the, uh, drew the Magic Crystal of History in the first new fund, 1935, under Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. So he's actually important in the early comics period. And then that magic crystal of history was extended in the Enchanted Stone of Time in the comics by Dell going through 1938. So so tell us a little more background about Adolf Bro. He married an Italian, I guess. And then there was something, another thing you put, he had illustrations and colliers and uh, snappy stories. Let's see, well, other just- things- uh-huh. I just recently, again, on my blog, my, my follow-up blog, Invisible Men, I just showed uh, all these illustrations that he had done earlier for, yeah. for George Matthew Adams, who was a, a syndicator of comic strips. He, most of the stuff that George Matthew Adams syndicated was stuff that was like, oh, all homespun type of homilies and things like that and poems and comic strips. So it, was, it was something totally different from what you would expect 
the role to be in, you know involved in. Mm-hmm. But it was at the same time as like 1937, 38, 39, 40. And he did these illustrations for these homespun homilies that George Matthew Adams would do. And it's, again, something totally at the same time he was doing snappy stories and semi-chronography for Harry Donenfeld. He was drawing these illustrations for probably the, the most old school uh, right wing type of uh, newspaper columnist that there was. Just very interesting. It was very complex man in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's fascinating. And then yeah. also he had his own uh, art studio, Majestic Studio, that Donenfeld right. actually like funded his art studio. Right. Then he also was part of, uh, well, when Worth Carnahan started Champion Comics that later became Harvey, that was, you mentioned that that could have been actually bankrolled by Donenfeld as well, but he actually, but Worth Carnahan actually hired Burrow to work on strips for those early comics that ended up becoming Harvey comics. And Burrow was actually working for them till through like 1941. Um, yeah, Again, it's 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 very complicated, and that was purposely done, Alex. There was so much stuff that was done behind the scenes because they were trying to hide. You know, guys were trying to hide uh, money, right? You know, here, especially a guy like Donenfeld. He yes. he had his fingers in so many different companies. It wasn't funny. And you're saying it was more for tax purposes? Tax purposes, and I'm sure that there was monies that he was he probably uh, had illegally that he didn't want the government to know about. And if he, he could fund somebody to start up a company where he didn't have to have his name on the papers at all, but probably got you know some of the profits out of it, I'm sure that's what was happening. And Worth Carnahan was was an established illustrator, you know, long before he knew uh, Barrow, and he became part of Barrow's studio. But in theory, you know, Barrow ended up working for him, you know, on those few comic books. But who knows? I mean, it could have just been all in name only. It could have just been, a, you know, a, a Donenfeld enterprise where they just put Worth Car- Carnahan's name on it. And, you know, they were all just working. You know, it was Bro's studio doing it, mm-hmm. but just with Carnahan's name on the publication. Oh, interesting. I mean, like That's like I said, cool. there's so much razzle dazzle going on. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's impossible to figure it all out. Right. We just it's just a paperwork trail, kind of. And right. then also then Bro then worked on Donenfeld's Trojan magazines through his mm-hmm. studio, which all ended about the mid 1950s. So that's almost a 20 year association with Harry Donenfeld that Bro had. Oh, what's 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 that? Show us that again there, Ken. Yeah, that's a, right. This is one of the issues right here. Oh, OK, it. it's a it's little blacked out from here. the virtual background, but that I saw I was able to see part of that. And that's awesome that you have that. Um, I got I got a lot of these. It's this has. Well, this prints that famous Sally the Sleuth uh, story, the yes. one where uh, they ended up in Seduction to the Innocent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that's in this story right here. Again, I see it's breaking up on the screen. But but we thought we were able to see the title and some of the art. That's awesome. And 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 what's fascinating is him and Donenfeld, like, it's, again, you, I know you don't want to get into their minds, but it sounds like they had some trusting working relationship going on for a long time. He must have. I mean, he was associated with Donenfeld going back to uh, when Donenfeld bought the Police Gazette back in the early 30s. Mm-hmm. And when uh, Merrill Hersey was put in control of uh, pub, of uh, Police Gazette, one of the uh, artists that they hired was uh, Barreau, and he did a comic strip for him. Mm-hmm. And from that time on, he became like Donenfeld's 
you know, go-to guy for illustrations in his spicy magazines. Right. Right. Which if a lot of people don't know, Sally the Sleuth, she, she was actually in some ways empowering in that she was a female, almost a, a, a hero or a detective hero, but there's a lot of, obviously it was about make getting her naked half the time. Right. Um, By the end of the story, she usually had almost no clothes on. Right. And still almost talking like- to the, the cops with a straight face with her boobs. Right. Out. Yeah. Hey, yeah. hey guys, looks like you're a little late to the party. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was a very strange concept, but that it sold, I guess. I don't know. It's it definitely weird. sold. And then also just to kind of wrap him up a little bit is that he was a photo special interest books editor and writer for Fawcett. That's probably after their comics line was, was gone and he's more on the book end of things. Worked in a New Jersey paper, like you said, Francis Strom Thurman, and he died in 1985. So he was around for a good while. Any last notes on Adolf Brunt until Jim talks about his preferred person to chat about? Nothing. Just like I said, there, there, there's a lot more about his his personal philosophies and stuff like that that I, at some point, I think I'll, I'll you know, I'll share some of the, the letters and stuff like that that he wrote to some of these magazines and, you know, to newspapers and stuff like that. He was just, like I said, he was a very complex guy and it's really hard to know, you know, exactly what was going on with him all the time and that, but. It just, like I say, he, he just totally divorced himself from his black identity, which yeah. is, you know, it, 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 make, it makes him a, a difficult person to figure out. You know, it's you can't hold him up really as a hero, you know, but at, at the same time, you understand why he did what he did. Yeah. Because you know, to him, it was the only way he uh, could succeed. Right. More of a survivor than a hero, probably. Exactly. That's an excellent way of putting it. All right, Jim. Well, Alex, actually, Ken's going to go next, but I wanted to, in, in this exercise, I wanted to ask each of us what why you picked the person that you picked out of the, the choices. So what was it that drew you personally to this story as compared to some of the others? Well, the number one is that Bro was there during some of the earliest comics periods. And then his uh, relationship with Donenfeld, who obviously also had his hand in quite a lot of golden age comics companies. So there's something about Barreau and being part of that gestating period from which a lot of the modern comic books come from, you know, it's almost like Lloyd Jackett in a way where, you know, a lot of people don't talk about him, but he was editor of the, of the new fun one, which was started DC, but he also had obvious involvement in the first Marvel comics one also from his studio. So Again, it's like Jacket and Barreau are just really interesting figures to me. And then there's this, also this weird self-hating aspect to Barreau that I found somewhat fascinating too. So if I can call it that, I'm not sure. I, that's my assumption, but that's why. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that, that's, you know, I think that's a fair assumption. But again, I, I didn't want to state that in the book, you know, right. because I can't read the man's mind. You know? Right, right. That's Funny an editorializing it's funny you bring up Lloyd Jackett though, because I got a huge file on him that I'm just waiting to put together one of these days. You'll be amazed at the stuff that he was involved in. Lloyd Jackett to me was possibly the most overlooked important person in the history of comics, right? Because he was involved in so much in the early days of comics, did the first DC comic, the first Marvel comic. I mean, you know, he did a lot of stuff and a lot of innovations that happened in the early years of comics came directly from Lloyd Jackett. And there's more things involved with his personal life 
it's going to surprise a lot of people when I yeah see that I I I'd read that tonight if I could so yes yeah like like I say I with Lloyd Jacquet I got a whole personal letters of his that he wrote to his wife I got his military files I got from the government so I got a lot to work with him, with him you guys gonna be surprised when I just that's one of the, one of the projects I want to finish this year yeah that's great I'm excited about that that's huge so. Yeah. I'm going to let you go next because it makes sense for you to do Stoner before I do how before we talk about Hollingsworth. Okay. Well, to me, Elmer Stoner is the most important black artist of all, more important than Matt Baker or Hollingsworth or anybody else. Elmer Stoner was this talented, fine, uh, classically trained fine artist. He went to studied in Europe. He studied in France. He came back in France, nineteen from France in 1922. He's from well, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. His family was was wasn't wealthy, wasn't you know poor necessarily. His father was a a pastor and all this stuff. They were all very well educated. A lot of it was was homeschooling and stuff like that at the time. And anyways, he ended up going to uh, study in Paris, you know, and became a classically trained fine artist. In 1922, he came back. And he participated in this art show. It was the Negro Artist Exhibition. It was held at the Harlem Library in 1922. And that's considered a, a seminal moment in Black artwork in the United States because that was the first time Black artists had their own art exhibition anywhere in the United States. And it was all these famous artists who happened to exhibit at the same time. And one of those artists was Elmer Stoner. The next year, he married this woman named Vivian, uh, Vivian Stokes, who was herself a very accomplished woman. She was an activist. She was a social worker. She was she worked for the National Urban League. And at the time when he married her, she she'd just been appointed an important position at the YWCA, where she overlooked something for an entire nation for finding housing for uh, black women whose husbands fought in World War One. And there was no housing for the women who were left home, uh, uh, left behind. Anyways, she was an important woman in, in the early years of uh, civil rights. Well, he married her in 1923. And they, in turn, became integral to the whole Harlem Renaissance. They belonged to a literary group that included Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Houston and stuff like that. You know, they befriended all these you know famous people and were all part of the same group. Well, Stoner, for his part, worked very little in the black media. The only thing I've ever found was this one thing called The Messenger, which was a 1924 issue that he worked on. And The Messenger was the most important black magazine published at that time, literary magazine. And he was one of the illustrators for it. So he was this well-established fine artist for years before you know, he even got into comics, almost 20 years before he got into comic books. And the way he got into comics was the way a lot of uh, Black artists did, and even Jewish artists. And that was through the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, which was established by Roosevelt back in the 30s. And what the, the creation of the WPA was, was to find work for unemployed artists at the time. And they put them to work doing things like painting murals on libraries or, you know, for, you know, different projects around the country they would, would, would find for them. Well, the pro one of the projects he worked on was the World's Fair. 
1940 World's Fair, 3940 World's Fair, and he did a lot of work there. But what happened in 1940 is the WPA went away because it was defunded by Congress. So when it was defunded by Congress, what it did, it, it threw a lot of these artists out of work. They had no work at all. And most of the artists were minority art, artists. They were the uh, black artists and Jewish artists. And I'm talking about artists like Louis Fairstadt, who was a fine artist. He ended up working in comic books. McRoy was another one who worked for WPA, who was put out of work. You know, and they, entered, and they all drifted into comic books because that was the only job they could find. And with everything else, you know, it, it was just, you know, the timing. But he started in comic books in 1939. There's, there's rumors that he worked on Detective Comics, number one which he didn't. And even by his own words, I, I found him when he talks several times about starting a comics in 1939. He was working basically through the Jack Bender studio uh, at the time until he went off on his own and he worked out of his own home. But he served as a conduit for later Black artists to come in. Again, there was references several times to artists saying how, you know, it was thanks to Stoner that they even got into comics. It's more than coincidental that, you know, to me, that there was a, a lot of early artwork, like, for instance, by Hollingsworth. Some of Hollingsworth's first artwork was in comic books like the Blue Beetle. You know, like he did Bronze Man and the Blue Beetle as a backup feature in a couple of issues. That was a comic book basically done entirely by uh, Elmer Stoner. Owen Middleton, the only published comic bearing his name appeared in a comic book called War Heroes. It was published by Dell, but was an almost entirely done by a stoner other than that one story. So a lot of these early artists were connected to stoner and he would serve as an entry point for them into comic books. And to me, that's what makes him so important, you know, to the, to the comic book history. And afterwards, he actually published comics too. He did a few comics on his own, you know, he continued making promo comics right up through the 50s, up to about 1957. He was still working for Vital, doing a lot of promotional comics. So he had the longest career, you know, of, of any of the black comic artists. And he was important, you know, before and after, you know, his whole comic book career. Just a fascinating man. Just a really fascinating man. That's great. I, I wanted there. Because that's why I did it in that order, because he seemed significant, because certainly to Hollingsworth, he's he's very significant. And it seems like his name pops up, Stoner's name pops up over and over in your book right. and chapters. Uh, so does Bernard Bailey's. Right. Too, um, yeah. Which, especially in the context of who I want to talk about, well, I want you to talk about to me, which, yeah. is, which is Hollingsworth, because Bailey really is significant. I think in 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 his both comic career and his later career, right? It, it, yeah, Hollingsworth is an interesting guy. He's another guy who was a tremendous talent. You know, he started working in comic books when he was in junior high, and that was basically through Joe Cooper, who was a, a junior high buddy of his, and he got him working through the Charles Quinlan Studio at first. You know, he just did a few backup things, you know, for Quinlan, but it was really. Uh, through Bailey, he first got his real, his first published work, you know, bearing his own name and stuff like that. And was like things like Bronze Man and stuff like that. Well, later on in his career, 
he ended up working for Bailey again in Bailey's men's magazines, which was kind of interesting. Bailey was a publisher by this time in the late 50s. He went to Hollingsworth and he had he became an illustrator for his men's magazine. He did some really interesting, I think, modern artwork like for uh, Bailey's things. I put some of that on my uh, blog. And um, this was in high, well, in several things, right. high magazine. Yeah, it, it was these two weird magazines called High and Ho. Okay, it's they're very bizarre. They're, they're a weird format magazine. They're, they were half size magazines. They, they were um, fully the size of a regular magazine, uh, tall wise, but only half size going across, so they could fit in the vest pocket of a of a of a gentleman's suit coat, is the way they put it. Anyways, Bailey published these magazines for several years and that, and uh, Hollingsworth was a regular contributor. And one of the things he contributed to it was this series of sketches he did of Harlem, which I think was really interesting. It was, it was like a three-page pictorial that he did for the uh, for one of the Bailey's magazines on just based on his Harlem sketches, which in turn led to a whole series of paintings that he did later on. The way I, I read it, as you wrote it, it, it was almost as if Bailey saw, well, the way it's it's framed is Bailey saw it and said, I want to put this in the magazine. Right, right. Ba- Bailey had, uh, you know, again, he, he's one of the more fascinating characters ever to appear in comics. I don't want to go into him too much right now because I had this entire book written about him. But he had a, a, a keen eye for talent. I mean, he gave Frank Rosetta his first, you know, opportunity to work in comics. And there's there a lot of guys who worked for Bailey. Charles Voigt, who was a fantastic old-time artist, who was uh, an alcoholic and couldn't get any jobs. And Bailey hired him literally off the street. And the only artwork he ever did was in comic books was for Bernard Bailey. John Junta did some fantastic stuff while working for the Bailey shop. Like I said, if this book's ever published, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful compilation of artwork. I'm I'm really intrigued by that because yeah. and this and your piece here got me. I mean, I was aware of Bailey and a lot of his contributions, but reading this and about High Magazine and, and spotting that those Harlem drawings and wanting yeah. to put them that was really intriguing to me. I, I I like this chapter so much because there was like the friendship with Joe Kubert, which was. Mm-hmm to me because you have these concepts of black and white and they're not being in, in the comics thing, not being the connections uh, that it's it's segregated almost. And they went to the same high school to the and and before that, but Cooper encouraged him to go to the school of industrial art. And the right. fact that was in somewhere that he could go to was somewhat surprising to me. Right. Talk about that just for a second. Well you mean about the high school? Because that that comes up in your book more than once. Alfonso Green went to that school too, right? right? Well, you know, he went, he went to a different one. They went to uh, let me think. Kubert in Hollingsworth, I believe, went to music and art. And but Alfonso Green and Ezra Jackson went to in, in the industrial art high school. I and think, uh, what, they're all similar. So what it was is back in the thirties, uh, Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor of New York introduced all these vocational schools, basically. And they're what I guess they call them nowadays, they call magnet schools, where it was where any student in the city who was qualified, you would test into these schools. You had to pass a series of tests to get into these schools. And if you had any talents, 
like artwork or dance or singing or writing or whatever. You would have to pass a series of tests to get into these schools. So it was like the best of the best would get in, no matter where you're from. And so it, it was a, a unique opportunity for minorities a lot of times to actually get real training, whereas they wouldn't get it if they went to their own schools in their own neighborhoods. And I think it was a great concept. I don't know if, you know how well it still works you know, right now, but at the time, it was, it was really you know, unique opportunities for these kids. And and based upon reading your own chapter, I think Hollingsworth did go to School of Industrial Art, but he taught when he went back to teaching. Okay, yeah, I, I get confused. Like I said, I get too confused because he changed their names too, which makes it kind of confusing. Yeah, but that I thought that was really that that was interesting. The the racial identity aspect of of Hollingsworth. Let's talk about that for a second, because he was not African-American descended from uh, slaves the way that that some of the others were. He's West Indies, right? Well, I believe so. Like I say, that's one of the interesting things I talked to Alex about a little bit before. And that's the reason why uh, I specifically refer to Black artists throughout the book and not African-American. Because there's this concept we have in this country, we're assuming all Blacks are African-American, but a significant amount were not, and still are not. You know, they're they're uh, African-Caribbean, or, you know, it's, there's different ethnicities within, you know, the Black identity. You know, and and it's, again, you know, it's, that's all part of the thing which I try to get across in the book, that there's so many things as white people we're unaware of. You know, even within, you know, the, the black community, you know, there, there was different degrees and different perceptions. You know, West Indian blacks were considered different than a lot of African-American blacks, even within their own community. And that's a very interesting dynamic that they had going on there. They, they were even they, they were almost like separate, you know, a community within a community kind of thing. And that carries over even today. Uh, Obama versus Michelle Obama were, were treated somewhat right. differently because right. of her, or Kamala Harris and whether or not she's, quote, black enough. But there's this one called Cry City was, was a series of paintings he did. And they're very powerful, compelling images that he has. And it's uh, it's really something to see. You know, and again, it's it's something that you wouldn't think about when you think about a person as a comic book artist, I mean, when most people think about A.C. Hollingsworth, they think about horror comics or something like that. And then you see this entirely different aspect of a person, you know, artistic aspect. And that's, like I say, I it's frustrating in one sense because I can only touch on so much, you know, in, in such a limited space. But I just hope that, you know, all these stories lead people to you know, go more into these stories and try to find out more about these men in the, you know, in the, in the completeness of their lives, because each one of them is so rich and so full of, you know, fascinating information. Well, that was, that was, I think the, the aspect of, of him, of Hollingsworth that why I was drawn to, to him because he went back, he realized he wasn't going to make his living at, at comics uh, right. living. And he went back to school and he didn't just go back to school for a course. He went through, I don't know if he completed his PhD, but he was in a PhD program. Right. Yeah. Cause that's always been kind of vague because, 
he would refer to it as being in the PhD program, but I also noticed he never used PhD after his name, even when he was teaching. So I don't know. It's you know, it's, it's one of those things I'm not sure about. And I'm I'm always fascinated by artists who go back to school and they come out with different training and they're different artists. And certainly right. he becomes more abstract and, and his work is really interesting. Although you mentioned the zombies, the zombie story that you <laughs> in that is the other reason I picked him because I I was just that open flash oh, page. Yeah, he, he was a great comic book artist. Yeah, but his 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 fine art was totally different, you know. And that's what's amazing about each one of these men. You know, they're, they're just you, you see different identities, you know, that that they had, you know, artistic identities, which people don't. You always assume somebody having a style, like there's the Kirby style or the Ditko style, but there's more to a person. And especially these guys who had, you know, they have fine art training. You know, it's it's just entirely different. You know, Stoner is is another perfect example to me. If you look at the work that Stoner did outside of comics, you wouldn't even know it's the same human being. You know, it just amazes me. That's what, and I would love to have a book that that showed that I think the the definitive book on the WPA art, right, and right. contrasted with the comics and the influence of it back and forth on on uh, before and after and everything else is. Right really interesting to me and i wish we had a good book on that yeah yeah well like, like i say you know I'll, I'll never i'm hoping that this book kind of triggers an interest that will lead to other books you know that that bring this these aspects of uh comics history and stuff like that to general public because again like i said I, i've always been told that a lot of stuff is too esoteric and too obscure to interest the book buying public and it took me, you know, until Craig came along, nobody even bothered to want to publish this because they always figured, oh, there's only a handful of people are interested. And maybe, if, you know, enough people buy this book, you know, it'll open up doors for other writers and, you know, other aspects of uh, comics history. Well, I will I will tell you this. I had I read this on the P PDF, you know, for both mm -hmm. purposes and for this. And then about uh, maybe last Wednesday or so. My mother-in-law sent it to me as a as a present because she's trying oh. to what to give me. Yeah. It was after the New York Times piece. And oh, I okay. I knew it. I, I I called her up and I thanked her. I said, Did you get that from the New York Times? And she said, Yeah, I, I know I don't know if you know wow. that. And I'm like, I'm interviewing him in like two two days. It's gonna be bad. And I I gotta say for anybody listening, it really needs to be owned as that book because i i mean as much as i enjoyed reading it on on my ipad it there's no it's not the same experience and right. and doing that and seeing it in print makes a real difference oh yeah I, i've had several people say that because we sent out a few you know pdfs and that then people got the book and they go wow you know i like i said i think craig and uh, cleetzi did a, a fantastic job with the design of the book and that i personally think that they should get some sort of design award for it but Oh, I personally like my mother-in-law more because of your. <laughs> so, which maybe we don't have to. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. So, anyway, because she's not going to listen. So I, I just the, the couple other things I just want to say super quickly on on Hollingsworth was the the school 
his high school experience. When I went to the next chapter and his success and how he how he lived and just his entire life story, and then I go to the next chapter and it's Alfonso Green and it's like the opposite story, even right. the same school. So just tell us just for a second, you know, that he why that it's why I'm saying that. Well, Alfonso Green. And who tipped me off of this was Alex Toth in that famous, he wrote, I don't know if it's famous, but a well-known article uh, some years ago. He wrote about Alfonso Green, who he went to high school with. And he talked about this troubled kid who had been in and out of trouble with gangs and stuff like that. And he never knew what happened to him or anything like that. So he fascinated me right from the get-go. And I knew a little bit about him. Well, unfortunately, most of Alfonso Green's story comes from the negative side. Because he did belong to gangs and that. And he was in trouble. He was in prison off and on. I mean, he had a, a good gig going with DC Comics. But while he was in high school, he was drawing, you know, a backup feature in Wonder Woman on Sensation Comics called uh, The Black Pirate. And he also did the Sojourner Truth story for the Wonder Woman of History for Wonder Woman Comics. So even while he was in high school, he was talented enough to work for D.C. But soon after, he went to jail for a a gang fight he had been involved in. So he comes out of jail, you know, in in the later 40s, it's about 1947 or so. And he ends up working for Eastern Color in working on heroic comics, basically these two and three page stories that appeared in heroic comics, these true stories that they would publish, you know, about, you know, in comic book form. And he was doing a fairly uh, steady work through them. And he got in trouble again and went back to prison again for some robbery at that time. He belonged to something called, um, what they call it, the, the lemon gang or something like that. Because what they did is they were robbing uh, people and shoving a lemon in their mouth when they would rob them. So they couldn't talk. It was, it was kind of a bizarre story, but he was involved in that and went to prison again. So around 1950 or so, he comes out again and ends up working for Atlas and Stan Lee, you know, and he works for them fairly steadily right up until the implosion about 1957 or so. And then he disappears. And there was nothing, you know, I could find for years afterwards and still little bits and pieces until finally I came across some references to him being involved again in a robbery with three other guys outside the Waldorf Astoria in New York in the early 60s. And I found the booking photo of him, unfortunately. And that's the photo I had to use in the book. That's the only photo I could ever find of him because he wasn't even in his high school yearbook. But it's just a, a tragic story because he was a very talented artist and from a young age, you know. But he just went the wrong way, you know, and that's life. You know, and that's, that's the, the whole thing with these stories here. You know, each, each person has a, a fascinating story behind them. And that that when I when I read those back to back, the question I would have is, were you were you doing these when you're packaging this? Are you doing this simply in a more chronological way or are you telling are you are you playing with the narrative to some degree? Because it was it was jarring to go from that. Well, to the other back to back. I, I know it seems like I was, but actually it was pretty much chronological. If you, if, if you look at the birthdays of each one of those guys, it, it goes from the firstborn 
which was either Bro or uh, Stoner. I can't remember. Bro, Bro, Bro is the first one. Yeah. Okay. It it goes from Bro to Stoner to uh, Pius, Jay Jackson, Elton Facts, and it's pretty much chronological, you know, in the in the way they were born. But I agree with you in that you know his his two stories against each other are pretty jarring. You know, when, when you see the, you know, how, how the, the different lives, same thing with Ezra Jackson. I mean, Ezra Jackson literally was in the same class as Alfonso Green. Yet again, you know, he had a, a fairly decent run in comics there until he left. And he came back into comic books later on in the 60s and 70s, ironically enough, working for uh, Myron Fass, doing some of those weird shock comics and stuff like that. They were knockoff Warren's. I don't know if you guys remember those at all. Yeah. Oh, sure. But, yeah. You know, some of those real horrible horror comics and that. But he also did part, he worked for the Golden Legacy uh, series. It was done by Fitzgerald, which is Black History Comics done in the 60s. And his daughter is Sheila Jackson Lee, one of the most powerful congresswomen in Congress. Yeah. Which is, is a fascinating story. Every year she would read uh, a tribute to her father before Congress in the congressional record on Father's Day, there's a tribute to him. And she always mentions his comic book work. Yeah, I, I, I've heard that. That's And I just think that's really cool, you know, that she does that, you know. But again, you know, there's there was nothing ever known about this guy. And it's so funny. I, his person he was partnered with most of the time was Maurice Whitman, who's a fairly well-known comic book artist. Early on, they would switch off, you know, penciling and inking, you know, each other's work. And you know, they did a combination of their names. And, but when I went and asked his son, Maurice Whitman's son, if he had any memories uh, of his father talking about working with Ezra Jackson, he swore to me his father never worked with a black man at any time in his life. So, which I just thought was interesting. So either one, he didn't know about it, or two, Maurice Whitman just cut that part out of his story and they worked together for a number of years. Oh, see, that's really fascinating. You know, and so there's a lot of, you know, stuff that goes on in the background. You just don't know what sort of dynamic these people had. You know, did they not like each other? Did he just want to not acknowledge the fact that he worked with a black guy? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that, no, that's that's the, the, the question and the unanswered question. Right, right. And you know, not to try to answer it if you don't know the answer. And, and Exactly. And see, as I said, again, Jim, what I do is I present the facts and I leave it up to the reader to try to figure out what's going on. I mean, they don't, you know, I don't know any more than they do. So, so we covered we covered the people, but the 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 one that it seems almost like the chapter that's not just about the artist was your chapter on on Negro comics, and Alex is going right. to about that. Right, right. So the discussion of all Negro comics is interesting because it's actually a black made uh, comic and. Right. And that's important because it becomes almost an extension of what you've been calling the black media in a way, but in a way that actually was accessible to a lot of uh, a lot of white readers at the time. And also within the context of there was a previous comic book that had a, co- a couple issues called Negro Heroes 1 and 2, which was actually more of a white made comic. But right. so it, that's an interesting thing that would kind of precede that one. And we can't really talk about all Negro comics without mentioning Orrin Evans, who was kind of the the person behind it. So tell us first about Orrin Evans 
and the creation of All Negro Comics. And that also then goes into some involvement by some of his cohorts, George Evans, his younger brother, William H. Smith, Leonard Cooper, John H. Terrell. So tell us about this movement of All Negro Comics. Well, Orrin Evans was an established journalist. He was one of the first black journalists to work in a white newspaper. And this has gone back, I believe, to the 1920s when he first started his career. And he would work in white newspapers. And anyway, by the 1940s, he was working for... Um, or the Philadelphia Record? Yeah, Philadelphia Record. Thank you. I was trying to think of the last, which paper it was. Well, the paper went out of business. And when the and it was actually of, because of like he was pro union, but the right. unions kind of took down his newspaper, which is an odd thing. Right, right. It was uh, again. It, it's it gets a very complicated story when you start getting in the union involvement in that. And basically, what it was is the paper would rather shut down than uh, work with the unions. Okay, so that's what they did. You know, they closed down the newspapers. So what Evans did is he recruited a couple of the other editors that he'd worked with on the paper and some of the business people. And they formed like their own publishing company. And he called it All Negro Comics. And he was the head of it. He was the president of it. And his concept was to publish a comic book totally created by Black artists and creators. He started with, obviously, his brother. His brother, uh, George, is you know his younger brother. And his brother had friends who worked who went to school with him at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. He recruited several of them. It was just, I believe, William Smith and Leonard Cooper and stuff like that were, the, were some of the guys he worked with, he went to school with. He recruited them to work on the comic. And they also recruited this guy named John Terrell. And John Terrell had already been working in comics off and on in black media. He'd done something for the New York uh, Amsterdam News back in the early 40s. And at the and, time... And uh, Judge, uh, uh, Judge Humor magazine, something like that? Right. He did, he did it like some of these panel cartoons and stuff like that. So he'd done some pro- professional cartoon work. He was the only one who's really a professional cartoonist coming into this. All the rest were just college students at the time. Right. Like they just came out of what the Museum of Art Schools. That's what... Right. That right. was the big I, thing there. Yeah, yeah. Ironically enough, uh, Samuel Joyner, the guy who got me into this whole thing, he went to school with these guys at exactly the same time, but he oh, wow. wasn't one of the guys who was recruited for this. It's ironic. It's just ironic wow. how, how that all worked out. But anyways, so Evans, you know, came up with this concept and, you know, they created this all Negro comics. And right from the get-go, they had problems because of distribution. You know, there's a lot of white retailers and stuff wouldn't even put the comics on newsstands. Particularly like, you know, anywhere outside of, you know, going south or anything like that. So by the time, even though they completed the second issue, and it supposedly exists somewhere from what I've heard, you know, there's members of the Evans family say that the issue still exists somewhere, that it was never published because they couldn't get any of the, the paper dealers to sell them paper to do the printing of the second issue because they were black. And so it was... You know, it, it was just, it was a good attempt, but just never worked out, you know, and, you know, who knows what would happened, you know, if, if it would have caught on, but it, it would have been a very difficult sell anywhere on any newsstands because, you know, there, anytime a black would appear on a cover, it was usually in a, a comedic sense or as a villain and never as, as a hero. Mm-hmm. You know? 
Yeah. And so this is interesting because they had that, that one issue. And then there was some issues with printer supply paper of some kind. Right. That's what it was. It was, it was, it was, they wouldn't sell them paper. The, uh, why, why is that? Uh, is it because the they just didn't they generate the money to buy the paper? What happened? Well, it, again, what the family claims is that it was discrimination just because they were black. They wouldn't sell to them because they were black. Mm. I don't know if that's true, but that's what the family claims is, you know, you know the situation. Which is it, tragic. It well, that's a terrible thing. Yeah. If, that's, if that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, again, you know, I, would I, do I believe it? Yeah, I, I believe that is a fact. But I also think that, you know, there's enough paper retailers around the time that, you know, they should have been able to find somebody, but maybe there wasn't enough money, you know, generated by the first issue. I don't know because it didn't get wide distribution. That's why it's such a rare comic today. Yeah. There you, know? you go. So distribution and then maybe some low money. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Cause see, see there, there, there was a definite bias against uh, putting blacks on the cover of a, of a, of a comic book. Yeah. Like let me just show you something real quick. I don't know if you guys can see this crown comics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. this, with the horns. Yeah. With, with the black eye on there. Mm -hmm. Okay. This comic book here is the comic that publishes Voodoo, the first black hero to ever appear in a comic book. It was drawn by Matt Baker. Yeah. Well, Voodoo was never depicted on the cover as a black character. The only time they would show Voodoo on the cover, but he was colored white. Yes. But on the interior for the first six issues, he was black. Yes. On the interior. And that was purposely done because retailers in the South wouldn't put a comic on the stands with a, a positive black character on the front. Right. This is interesting, this whole race changing. Because yeah. what I think Red Mask, what had that happened to Red Mask in like what 39 or so, where it was like he was black in the first couple, then it became a white character. And even yeah. later on, I mean, in the in the late '60s, with that Jericho guy from the what Teen Titans, and there was some issue with Southern Distribution, so they made him a white character at, at DC. So I guess this is just something that happened. I think that may have been coloring. I'm not sure they could make because uh, Jer Jericho. Oh, wait, are you talking about are you talking about Mal Duncan? For Teen I don't know Mal Duncan. I know the the code name. Maybe we're talking about the same character. Mal originally is the black guy that joins the Titans and later he becomes cyborg, right? Yeah. What's that? Isn't he become cyborg or no, a different guy. Oh. A, but he gets Jericho's horn at one point. But I don't I, and I think there's some coloring issues, but I don't think they ever convert him to a white person in, within the narrative. Hmm. I it, that'd be hard to oh, but it's complicated because he has a relationship with or there's a hint of a relationship with Lilith, and yes. that has driven people crazy but i don't think they could have made mal actually white because he was so you know uh, right there's like a the way is drawn but the coloring though was altered yeah there's a there's an interesting early issue of him where he goes into space and he's floating in space and he has a, a helmet on and he i i don't know if he's got perspiration coming out but if he does it's perfect because it's that it's that reference to to the ec, EC. comics with the yeah the ju judgment day judgment uh, day yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, okay joe, uh, joe orlando yeah so yeah and then also just to conclude 
or on Evan's story, everyone goes their separate separate ways. He worked for a newspaper in Pennsylvania. And right. I like how you write the mechanism of death in some of these. But he died of an aneurysm in 1971, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting. And then I think Jim has some follow-up questions and then we conclude. One of the things that I liked about your book the most, Ken, besides the, the comic book aspect, is these other things that watching how you navigate it, but how it, it's sort of a mapping of certain aspects of, of that time period. And, and I just want to go through three real quick that I think one can learn a lot from that book, even if you're not a comic book person necessarily. And the first one was literally mapping in terms of racism and different places in the country and how the, the narratives are different based upon the people growing up in New York or the first person growing up in the South or being a Southerner or right. West. And I, I wanted to ask it in the, in the context of what you learned while you were doing this in relation to regions and what surprised you or you found fascinating about America based upon where they were stationed at. Well, it, it's funny you say that because this, this book, like a whole thing was a learning experience for me because unfortunately, you know, we've had basically one story, one perspective told about history in this country. As a white person, you never considered the black perspective. And to realize that, you know, different parts of the country, like you mentioned there, had different ways of dealing with, you know, with, with their black populations. Like, for instance, like I didn't know until while I was doing research for the book, like Baltimore was the first city in the country to have segregated neighborhoods in the sense of where they you were not legally allowed to sell a home to a black person they you had to sell to a white person now you think of baltimore at least i always had is like a northern city and to think of that that happening and it happened within you know in the like the 1910s and 15s right around there that there's different parts of the country you know, were racist, but they're racist in their own way, in more subtle ways. And it's something that I didn't realize until I started doing this research. And again, it's all part of that, uh, the dual identity thing, which Blacks had to deal with, which a white person never even noticed it. But a Black person was very aware of it. You know, if, if they were going to go buy a home, there was literally red-lined areas where they could not physically buy a home. And that was happening in northern cities as well as, you know, black community and uh, southern cities. And, you know, we, we have a tendency to look to put all the blame in this country, racism, on the south. But it was it was systemic. It was throughout the entire country, but it was more benign in the sense of like it was. It wasn't in your face so much as is just established societal boundaries that the blacks had to deal with a lot of times. And that, I think, was even shown in the way they had to deal with editors. You know, even though they were in New York City, you know, the liberal bastion of New York City, blacks did not feel comfortable dealing with white editors and white editors didn't feel comfortable dealing with blacks. And that includes somebody like Stan Lee. I don't know if you saw that one instance there where... Uh, Cal Massey talks about dealing with Stan Lee 
And when I read that, that was kind of shocking to me in one sense, you know, because, you know, Stan Lee employed more blacks than any other editor by far, you know, but at the same time, he probably also had his own biases too. Right. He kind of sang like some derogatory poem back at him. Right. And, yeah, uh, it's, and it's Massey about, was like, what the hell? Okay. And then he started leaving. Stan was like, all right, all right, all right. Well, uh, what do you got? And then, so. Right. It, it was an old slave song, you know, and it, it, it said Massa is buried in the grave, you know, Massa meaning master, like, and he was doing a play on Massey's name. And Massey was shocked by Stanley saying it to him. This is right. an early 50s. Like, now, Is that when uh, Stan was wearing that propeller beanie hat? <laughs> but this is like an early 50s. Yeah. And yet he came to know Stanley is not really a racist type guy. But, you know, he had these he had these attitudes, you know, that was the attitudes of the people then. And it, it's something that, you know, you come to realize when when you're doing this research. It's it's the mind. It's, it's hard to wrap 21st century mind around a mid 20th century mind. You know, I'm lucky in the sense of like I've been around long enough. I've known people. Through you know, who grew up in the 1920s and 30s and stuff like my parents and a lot of people I know, but their biases were intrinsic to them, and it wasn't something that they necessarily wore on their sleeve. It's just they felt interiorly. I don't know if you guys understand what I'm saying, but it's and it's something that you see even in the way you know they presented the comic books. You know, it, it's hard for you know for somebody to read the spirit. In Overlook Ebony, for instance, you know, that's that's always, you know, you talk to someone, say, you tell them how great the spirit was. And then you see, you know, the character of Ebony. How do you explain that to somebody? You know, you know, how, how can you look at artwork and remove the racism of it? And, you know, that's something I struggle with all the time, you know, when I'm doing this stuff, you know, because I'm not oblivious to that. But at the same time, a lot of the stuff that we research, a lot of stuff that we love, you know, these old comics have a lot of these attitudes, which, uh, you know, are, are just anathema to what, uh, you know, people believe nowadays. It's just it's a very interesting dynamic. It's a tightrope walk, I guess you have to walk all the time, you know, w- when you're talking about these things. And I know you guys... You know, you probably deal with that all the time, you know, with, you know, the comic book historians page because. Comes up every once in a while. Yeah. No, but what I'm saying is, is, you know, how far do you let people go? Because almost immediately people will, you know, run to their uh, corners. Right. Stuff like that. You know, they just want to start espousing something or other. And it's hard to get people unemotionally to discuss these things, which I think is really unfortunate. Right. Because. I mean. I think for as many people as we have in the group, you know, the 10,000 plus for that amount, I think we're still able to maintain the best dialogue for that amount of people. Right. I think there's groups that have maybe a higher level of dialogue with only a few hundred people in them. And that, you know, so I I am glad that we're able to do that, but you're right. There's a certain tribalism that I think as we're talking about off air that that's inherent in social media that everything gets split into two sides, like on every issue. And then they just right. got to pound each other. And, and so how far do you let 
any of that go. And I think that's something that Jim and I wrestle with like all the time. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's I, something you you can't avoid when you're talking about golden age comics because it, they're so different. You know, the mindset behind them is so different right. than what there's a lot. Do. There's a lot of outrage. And I, and that's true. It, it, and, you know, Trina Robbins said, you know, you just got to look at this stuff within its context, discuss right. the context and then talk about why that context doesn't work anymore. But then also kind of appreciate maybe whatever good you can get out of it and how formative that stuff could have been at the time. You know, you got to like do that. You got to throw context at it. I think a lot of people just get mad at a panel and they react because that's the, you know, it's like meme culture, right? It's all about reacting to a quick thing. Right, right. There's two components to it. And one, I'd be critical of the left. One, I'd be critical of the right. There is that taking panels out of context or judging it in that quick way and saying, oh, we have to, or we reject the the creator 100%. We recently had somebody posting that really awful one page one 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 cartoon that Hank Ketchum did with the with the black guy which uh, the black kid that's a very very bad drawing of of mm-hmm. of Stephen Fetchett looking kid next mm-hmm. to Dennis the Menace and people were just attacking Hank Ketchum and Hank Ketchum may be a horrible human being you know I don't know and I don't care because I we would not have some of the art we have, if not for Ketchum's influence. And I love him for that. And in comic book historians, we can isolate that and talk about it in terms of artistic influence on the, I won't even say right. Cause it's not fair to the right, but there is a, when Superman clash of smashes, the clan came out. There were people that are defensive about the clan because of Charlottesville and other things, and they wanted. Why do I have to talk about the Klan? That's that's somehow politically correct. People wanting to bring that up, the Klan, and it's like, well, that's just stupid. And I just want to say it's stupid. That's a radio program. The Klan. It's okay to make them evil. Nobody's attacking political parties because they're bringing up the Klan, and that's and that created a lot of 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 tension on this side. Right. So right. we, we all need to take a breath on that kind of thing. So on right. our- See, and, and I, I totally agree with that. See, and that's the, the unfortunate aspect of social media that I was talking to Alex about off the air, you know, previously, is it, 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 it creates these divisions, you know, it, it creates these unnecessary fights with people, which really have nothing to do with what you're talking about in the first place anyway. Like you say, you know, I love Will Eisner. I love Will Eisner's artwork and, you know, in no way do I think the man was necessarily racist from his point of view. Was Ebony racist from our point of view? You can't get around it. Yes, he was. I mean, there's no way to look at him and saying he wasn't, you know, a racist characterization. But, you know, from what I know about Eisner and I know quite a bit, you know, you can't say that was a racist comic. And, and take it as that, you know, it's it's not a fair characterization of him. And I don't think he was racist himself no, specifically no, either. No. And like I said, I've, I've read hundreds of interviews with, with Will Eisner and things that he's written. Now I'm talking about going from like 1940 on, you know, he was interviewed all the time. But That's- people also change over time too. You know, we have, I mean, you know, it, everybody changes over time, whether they believe it or not, I can guarantee 
you know, in 1970, I was a different person than I am today, you know, 50 years later. Of course. And everybody is. And, you know, that, that's the other thing that, you know, we don't ever give people enough uh, credit for the fact that they change over time. People evolve. We just got to relax. We just got to chill out a little bit. But I would also say that I, as a white person, I'm not going to say Will Eisner wasn't a racist because he's not maybe to me as I perceive it. But if I was if I was black and I read that. Oh, yeah. To say, yeah, he's a racist. Oh, yeah. I totally understand that, you know. And we and and that's where individuals have their right to their their perceptions. Exactly. But I think the Will Eisner that I'm thinking about, the guy from the 70s and on, I think he learned from those mistakes at that point. Right. I, well, he I, I, I think Will he, Eisner 1940 is a different guy than Will Eisner 1977 contract with God. Will Eisner. Yeah, but you can you can get. He doesn't always, just like anybody that's an older person that's dealing with their own racism, they're funneling it through their own thing. So you can find quotes, not where he's saying racist things, but where he's sounding defensive or he's confused. You know, like it's just complicated, race, incredibly complicated. And I, I don't think there's one answer to any of those things about who's racist and who's not it is in the eye of the beholder in the eye of the the person that's having to experience it exactly but but exactly. that stan lee's story though is really interesting you never hear that about him again that's like another cool thing about your book there's just these things you point out that you have documentation for that you just never hear about even about but, people that we know uh, actually which is right. awesome. but see but to give stan lee credit at the same time Stanley also employed yeah. Cal Massey, Alfonso Green, yeah. you know, Matt Baker, yeah. Warren Broderick, all these black artists worked for him. Right. You know, and, he, and he his more... editorials on racism were very powerful at its time and well placed in the right. 60s when they were so, coming out. So like I say, it's 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 a complex, you know, sort of thing. You know, to Hollingsworth, you know, or to uh, Massey, he may have, you know, been a racist. But at the same time, he gave him a job. You know, it's 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 weird. You know, you know, EC Comics, as liberal as they were, never employed a black artist. You know, right? Whether That's it was Matt Baker, and I even talked to Al Feldstein about that some years ago. We had a discussion about that. He said he's ashamed. He told me he was ashamed to admit that he never employed a black guy. The only black person they employed was a secretary. Mm-hmm. He said he says we never employed a black artist and he says i'm embarrassed by that you say that yeah and honestly i think that if you give someone a job that's that shows a lot more than if you sound a certain way but don't actually give them a job i exactly. think that's uh, exactly. to me the proof's in the pudding and so i love the ec comics and what it stood for but like you said it's far from perfect exactly so so we we covered i i was going to mention industry but i think we kind of covered that just in this little bit of conversation the other Besides the region, I, one of the things I was curious what you learned about or, or, or felt like you learned, understood more was education opportunities, specifically art training, but, but school and the impact on that and how, it, how that impacted these, these Black artists. Because a lot of them right. trained. And, I, I, and was that surprising to you, what the, their experiences versus others? Well, yes and no. I mean, obviously, almost every single one of these artists had a specialized art training. 
it's interesting if you if you compare it to a lot of the white golden age artists. A lot of the white golden age artists were self-trained, you yeah. know, just kids and stuff like that. And you know, they became comic book artists. But the black artists, it's almost like they had to have another level of of training to reach the same point that the white artists did. Because almost every single one of these black artists, either in high school or in college, you know, they they you know, they became they studied artwork. Or they went to a specialized high school to learn artwork or something like that. None of them that I came across that I can think of just walked in off the street and became an artist. Right. You None know? of them were like apprenticed by a, a person. Right. Like right. You know, and which I think is, is really interesting. You know, when you compare that to most of the white comic book artists, you know, yeah. they like had Joe, Joe Kubert. He joined like when he was like 13. Well, you know, right. And no he brought training. in. So right, did. and he brought in Hollingsworth yeah. and stuff like that. That's yeah. right. But even so, Hollingsworth went up going to get in specialized training in uh, high school. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and also the other thing, too, which I think is interesting, which kind of uh, struck me, was most of the black artists had very short careers in comic books, whereas white artists, you find guys who had multi-decade careers. You know, they became – they're – they were comic book artists and they stayed comic book artists their entire lives where these black artists, it was only a stepping stone, something else, you know, for most of them, either they went into teaching or they became fine artists or, you know, they, they had other ambitions beyond the comic books. And I just think that was interesting. It, it was like, it was just, like I said, it, to me, it was an entry point into their lives, but it didn't define their lives mm-hmm. like it does for a comic book artist. Like when you talk about, Gil Kane, for instance. Gil yeah. Kane was always a comic book artist. Yeah. Steve Dicko, always a comic book artist. You know, even Jack Kirby, for all intents and purposes, was always a comic book artist. You know, you don't find that with black artists, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Uh, that was actually going to be my 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 final one was the notion of of high art and how so many of yours, your artists in your book went on to that. And one question I had was. A lot of, and I realized with this generation, they weren't coming from fanboy perspective like like right. artists are. But was the material that they were working with, the comic stuff that they were working with as white artists, maybe at least a little bit more there and personal and 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 relatable than it was to the black artists who were doing things like, you know, White Jungle Girl kind of kind of comics that that had to be like this is weird and i don't love it i want to do something beyond sheena right exactly and it's funny you mentioned that because i think i even mentioned that somewhere in the book how each one of these artists it seems like we're drawing we're basically a slap in the face type of uh characters where right you know you always had you know the white jungle god or you had you know the the white jungle princess or something like that and they were drawing these stories. Every single one of them, you know, ended up drawing stories like that, whether it was Robert Pius or Matt Baker or Hollingsworth, you know, in, again, you know, it's, it's all goes back to that dual identity thing. Like somehow they were able to separate themselves, even though they knew it was a racist presentation that they were, you know, depicting, they were able to do it. And I guess, you know, having to eat, makes you do a lot of things you know it's it, it'll make you accept a lot of crap and when you try to do like hollingsworth did worth did or maybe did with bronze man it's like okay 
we're not going to have it be what you might think it might be or want it to be. Well, I, I think sometimes they, they did something subtly. I just happened to notice yesterday somebody posted on some site the front cover to Rocket Kelly number three. Okay. I wish I had it for you, you know, to show you there. And what it is, it's an E.C. Stoner Fox comic, basically nothing special comic. But what it is, it depicts the Earth and a rocket ship taking off and, you know, launching from the Earth. Okay. But what's interesting, the rocket ship is taking off from Africa. Why Africa? You would think it would take off from the United States or Europe or something. It's taking off from Africa. And it's very obviously Africa because it's front and center right there on the globe of the Earth where it's launching from. And that, to me, was you know a very subtle thing by uh, Stoner. Yeah. You know, I just wonder how many other things were done like that. So check little, it out sometime. A little uh, Wakanda precursor or something like that. That's yeah. Yeah. So, and and another thing I liked, uh, I think it was, yeah, Stoner's relationship with uh, Walter Gibson. That was kind of cool. Yeah, uh, it was. It was. And again, you know, they had this working relationship, but I don't know how close they really were because in, in things I read from Walter, you know, Walter Gibson, he talks about this colored guy he worked with. Mm. And, you know, even though he wasn't that good an artist and stuff like that, but they worked together, you know, off and on for a number of years. Right. Uh, through Street and Smith, you know, yes. stuff they did for Blackstone Comics. Right. And then they did this, you know, this comic strip. But uh, Stoner ended up getting fired from the comic strip because of his artwork. They didn't like his artwork, and they hired Waller Johnson, who was a white artist. He ended up suing him, as a matter of fact, over it. Mm-hmm. Well, that reminds me of a question I had. Charlie Frederick, is that is that the name? Who was who the, the artist that was friends with Hollingsworth, worked with Hollingsworth? Charles Frederick? Charles, do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, you're talking about Charles Allen? Not Charles Allen. No, Charles Frederick. Charles Frederick. <laughs> and I mean, no, no, no. You, you, got, you got me there, Jim. That's, uh... No, you know, I I am famous for getting an, it, it's probably some other. Oh, he, had, he had a friend named Al, um, oh gosh, Al Sargent he yep. worked with. Not that far off. It's okay. Well, we'll Charles have... Quinlan? Al, what... Well, that was early on. Yeah, at Holyoke. No, uh, wait, who's that? Charles Quinlan, which no. you worked at at with with that at Holyoke. Alex, you're going to talk about the tremendous reception to the book and news, New York Times coverage, and things. I'll be back in a second. I'll have the person. So tell us how it's been the the reception, Ken, to your book. You know, it's gotten a, a lot of coverage, and I'm and and I'm loving seeing that because it's putting almost what was originally could have been viewed as esoteric material front and center culturally. What, what do you think that means as far as the current audience and the current reception you're getting? I hope it means that more people be, be interested and want to read more, you know, about comics history in general. I think timing has a lot to do with it. I think the subject matter has a lot to do with it, you know, because of race being so front and center right now. I've gotten a lot of uh, emails and texts from people who've never read anything about comics history. And they didn't, and they're thanking me for exposing them to it, which I think is really cool. Because it said, wow, I never realized that comic books had such an interesting history to it. Right. You know, I got this Times article today that has published something here in the Detroit Free Press, which is the largest newspaper in Detroit, has a, uh, a large article. And um, actually, I got a, another 
interview I gave to a West Coast chain of newspapers is going to be published in the next couple of days. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people are, are reading this stuff now. And, and, and to me, that's really exciting. Not so much for me because I don't really care. I'm, I'm not that uh, ego driven, you know, to worry right, about right, that. Right. Yeah, I, know, I know that you don't like your picture taken. You don't want to no. be out there visually. You want the work to stand for itself. Exactly. But it is nice to, to see your face. And to see it talking, <laughs> but no, it is. And, and also the passion and the research you you've done, it really, it, you can see it in how you uh, discuss it. it. It is a real pleasure. It is a real pleasure to see it in action verbally and visually. I appreciate it. Well, thanks. Well, like I said, I, I'll talk about comics all day, uh, 24 hours a day, if I could, you know, it's something I've been doing for 60 years. And, you know, it's it just, it's kind of weird for me in, in a way to see comics come to such prominence during my lifetime from where it started. I mean, for the longest time, you know, comic fans were ostracized and uh, made fun of. And to see comics getting respect that they are nowadays and discussed seriously, it warms my heart, you know, to, to hear that. It's just a, a really satisfying sort of thing. And if I can help with that, you know, that makes it even better as far as I'm concerned. I just hope that there's there's more books like this published and not by me. I'm just talking about, you know, there's so many guys out there who have things that, you know, it should be, you know, put forth. There's so many, so much great research that's been done over the years. And, you know, and I just hope that there's a market for it, you know, that, that they see that there is a market for this kind of stuff. You know, more publishers take a chance. Because publishing, I understand, is a tough business. You know, these guys got to, you know, there's a lot of, you know, they take a big risk every time they publish a book. Right. Just the print runs alone. And then also this whole, you know, the COVID world, you know, how does that exactly selling at a bookstore or comic store, any sort of physical place? Um, This gets, this gets pretty strange, actually. And yeah, it might all be online sales for a while. Yeah. Well, like I say, it, it, it's weird for me to watch. Like I, I check Amazon every day and I keep seeing the books sell out. And I go like, what happened to the books? Is that good or bad? You know, is it, are they going to be more published? I don't, I, there are going to be more published. You know, they guaranteed me of that, but it's just strange, you know, to, to even think of that, that somebody's reading something I've written, you know, it's, so I've, I've always written for me. I mean, I, that's what I mean, it says, like, you know, who do you write for? And I basically write for me. It's, yeah. it's what I like to do. In a way, it's how you kind of gather your info, kind of make notes for yourself, post it. Exactly. And it's almost your own mechanism of kind of jotting your notes down in a way. Right. I don't, I don't know if you guys noticed, but a lot of times, especially with my post, it's almost the way I talk. You know, I, I talk very much the same way I write. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's almost like stream of consciousness kind of thing. And since comics are what I do almost 24 hours a day, I mean, being retired, I literally spend almost all day involved with comics in one way or another. And yeah. that's why I just try to share it as much as I can. I had a different voice in my head, just so you know. I'm going to have to <laughs> I have to reconcile this. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to have to reconcile that. I don't Uh-oh. know if you get to call yourself retired when you're out promoting your book. That you- I know. It's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. I know I'm, I'm supposed to be sitting out on a patio uh, sipping a uh, Long Island iced tea or something. A little marmalade and bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Name I said, Charles what? Does anyone Charles know Frederick. the guy that I threw out. Huh? You said you said Frederick. Oh, Fer- yeah. You said Frederick. Uh, Charles Ferguson. Ferguson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Charles Ferguson. Yeah. What about him now? What was the question? Well, he, he popped up a lot in the... In right. the- 
Ellsworth Worth chapter, and I wondered, I, I guess I was using him as an emphasis to say, these the ones that are here on the book are not the only black oh, by any by stretch. No means. By no means. And see, that, that's also the thing that's frustrating to me personally, because, you know, the, the only criticism I've had so far is, hey, why didn't you include so-and-so? Or why didn't you say such and such about a person? And, you know, when you write a book, they only allow you so many pages. You know, it started out, I was only allowed 200 pages, okay, to do this book. And Craig realized early on, there's no way in the world you're going to be able to include as much as you want with 200 pages. So he got IDW, who's over uh, reaching uh, publisher to agree to, to knock it up to first 225 and then 250 pages, you know, for unproven author in a book, which was really, you know, go, for them going out on a limb. And I really appreciate that. This book easily could have been twice as long, if not longer. And somewhere down the line, I hope somebody will, you know, willing to take a chance and let me do a second volume to it because there's so much more I want to say and there's so many other artists involved who I left out. I mean, like Warren Broderick is is one, you know, I didn't include in the first volume because I didn't know that much at the time. I've since learned a lot more because I constantly keep doing this research. E. Harper Johnson, Tom Feelings are all three artists who should, you know, definitely be included because they all did a significant amount of work in the 1950s. I've recently learned that there's a couple other artists who worked in comics who have yet, I can't even find any credits for them anywhere in comic books, but I know they worked in comics. I have an article, matter of fact, I was going to put it online the next day or so about an artist named Bill Curry. He talks about being a comic book artist for five years in the 1950s. And I don't know of any Bill Curry who worked in comic books in the 1950s. And yet he wrote an entire article about it in a black newspaper. You know, so this is the kind of stuff that, I, you know, I, I deal with a lot of times is you got this one clue. And you have to try to build a biography from this one crumb of information that you have. And that's what I've been doing for the past 20 years. You know, and that's what I hope to do, you know, expand upon it from, you know, what I had in the first volume and expand on from like 1950 going forward. Well, I hope you do another one and not take 25 years because this. Well, I don't think I'll make another 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 68 right now and I'm pushing it. Okay. So, <laughs> any, any, any tie up questions? No, but I, I do want to thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy and you have a lot of interview offers and such. And I'm really glad you chose to spend today with us. It was, it was a huge pleasure. I've all, I've long time been a fan of your research, and I'm really glad that you put this book together and really solidified this story. And I, I got so much out of it, not just of the Black involvement in, in early comics, but also just on the origins of various things and the context historically that you you put. Just the whole Philadelphia Museum of Art just by itself is, a, is its own fascinating story. So right. I, I really appreciate the time you gave us here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast, Ken. Thank you. Well, thank you for asking me, you guys. I really appreciate you asking me. 